Hello and welcome to the Dorkamotive Podcast with Brian Loans. We're calling this episode Riptide. It's the story of the water speed record, an incredible quest over the last 120 plus years of innovators, of risk takers, and of people who have laid their life on the line to try to be the fastest man on the water the earth has ever seen. It's a story with many twists and turns, many of them on the dark side. This is Riptide. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more. The first tragic disaster of the year was the death of Sir Henry Seagrave in creating the world's water speed record on Lake Windermere. Welcome to Riptide. This is going to be an interesting episode. It is a a story and a timeline and a historical layout that has captured my imagination over the last couple of months of research. Initially, something I thought would be a fairly simple, straightforward story to tell, meaning the history of the water speed record took many, many twists and turns, and you're going to hear about all of them as it is a, a dangerous affair. This is not a feel-good story. Uh, it has some feel-good moments, but the the one thing we have to remember as we go through this timeline is that attempts on the waterland speed record carry an 85% death rate. In fact, the last uh, several people that tried it in modern times uh, all perished in their attempt to try to set the record or regain the record for themselves if they were trying to do that or they were trying to set it for the first time. This is a story that will take us international. It will move us all over the world. It will show us technological advancement. It will show us kind of um, how the public can lose interest in something that once captured their attention so heavily. And the people involved in this story uh, from top to bottom, beginning to end, are incredibly interesting, especially the man that you will hear from at the tail end of this show, who is the only person on this earth that is alive that has set a water speed record. And uh, he just so happens to be the current Lance water speed record holder, a record that was set in 1978. So that gives you an indication of how crazy this story will be. And, you know, one of the things when I started to put the information for this story together and kind of lay it out and try to understand how I wanted to make this show was where do you start? Where do you start telling the story of the water speed record? Do you pick it up in the 1920s? Do you pick it up in the 30s, the 40s? It is a very difficult thing to start with, but I felt like for historical context, I wanted to take it back farther than that. And one of the things I wanted to mention right off the bat is that when we talk about speed records, typically we're talking about the most major impediment to a speed record is is air, right? You have a car, you're trying to force the car through the atmosphere at as much speed as possible. The amount of power it takes to do so uh, has to go up exponentially to keep 
setting faster and faster speeds. Uh, aircraft, you can go to a higher altitude to thinner air. Ultimately, you're battling the atmosphere, and you're battling this invisible enemy known as air. The difference, of course, when we talk about the water speed record is that we're dealing with a substance that is 800 times more dense than air. That is the math of water. So when you have a substance that is 800 times more dense than air, it presents innumerable challenges to try to go fast through it. And that's why we'll learn over the course of our discussion here that the fastest way through the water is basically over it or on top of it. The technology and technological advancements we'll talk about over the course of this discussion about the water speed record really are interesting, and they are sometimes very basic. Other times they are very vastly advanced. But the one thing that they all carry with themselves is after a certain point, the techno technological advances of going faster on water become esoteric, become theoretical, and in so many ways become a patchwork of educated guesses, some clever engineering, and in the case of the current water speed record holder, some very intuitive thinking without a stitch, a bleeding stitch of an educational background in engineering or mechanical construction or boat building. So uh, the way we begin and end this story are going to be very, very different. And, and what I want to talk about here to start we're going to go back to 1854, which seems ridiculous when we're talking about the water speed record. But this is the context of the time, and, and I think we need to talk about that to kind of establish the baseline for what the rest of this discussion will be. So in 1854, the fastest vessel known to man, and, and I say this vessel, I'm not talking about a little um, skiff. I'm not talking about a small little craft that would carry one person or two people. I'm talking about a significant vessel, was a sailing ship known as the Sovereign of the Seas. It was a clipper ship. And in 1854, it set the record for a, a ship uh, traveling across vast expanses of land as it traveled at a sustained speed of some 25 miles an hour. And it basically had an innovative hull design that allowed it to ride a little bit higher in the waterline than other ships of its style, the clipper ships, if you will. And it was effectively a hot, the hot rod of its day when it came to the water. And hull design is going to be a constant evolution in this discussion and, and in this timeline that we talk about. But when we talk about the Sovereign of the Seas, we're talking about a big, multi-masted sailing ship hauling along in stiff wind at 25 knots. Now, this ship was 258 feet long, it's about 45 feet wide, and it weighed 2,421 tons. Giant square sails had a very sharp bow and stern, so the both ends were very tightly pinched together, almost like we'd see in the design of a massive canoe. It was built in 1852, and there was a captain named Donald McKay from East Boston who oversaw the construction of the ship, and unfortunately it lasted until only 1859 when it was wrecked and it sank. But when this ship went out, had a sustained speed of 25 miles an hour and was able to cover more than 400 nautical miles a day, it was global news. And having been able to go back and read some of the newspaper clippings from the 1850s, this was, this was heralded across the world. And for the owners of this ship, it was a giant, giant boon for their business. If you are, think of it, if you're in business at that time in history, the way you're going to make the most money is to get your stuff from point A to point B as quickly as possible. That doesn't matter if it was, you know, silver goods or if it was corn or it was pepper, whatever you were trying to move, the quicker you could get it from A to B, 
uh, means that you could charge a higher rate. The shipping company could certainly means that we could you could stand on the uh, you could stand on the strength of your brand and try to sell that clipper ship and its space for a higher rate than other ships if you knew you could deliver a faster pace for the customer. So this was, uh, in a way, the start of the water speed record. Now, yes, there were likely very small sailing ships able to catch wind and go a little bit faster than that, but I think in the context of what speed on the water meant in that time in history, it meant money, and it meant commerce, and it meant the, the kind of combination of both of those things. So... We move from the 1850s, and we move into a much more advanced time, which would be the early 1900s. And the early 1900s would see advancements, um, you know, in the technology of boat building, certainly in the the construction of not only the hulls, but really the way that horsepower is made. And to move ourselves to 1903, we're going to talk about the fastest boat in the world, built by a guy named Charles R. Flint. Now, this was a ship called the Arrow, and yes, again, it was a large, large craft. It was actually a yacht, and it was 130 feet long, 12 and a half feet wide, and pulled a five-foot draft, meaning five feet of the, the hull was down deep in the water. Had a steel frame, room for 25 men, and it made 6,000 horsepower with its, its steam engines. Now, these are steam boilers, steam engines, and that was the order of the day. If you were going to go really fast on the water in the early 1900s, it was not in small craft yet. The reason is that there were really no small engines yet. you got to think about this. When we talk about small boats, you have to have an engine that will fit in the boat to make a small boat go fast. Well, at this time in history, any engine, internal combustion engine, that was going to make any sort of horsepower was kind of a behemoth, and it ran at a very low RPM. And it wasn't exactly ideal for boats because of the fact that you needed RPM to turn a propeller to move the boat. Now, when we get to these giant-sized units, we can now start talking about these huge thousand, multi-thousand horsepower steam engines. Had 18-ton coal capacity. And what the neatest thing about this boat was, maybe not the the most uh, genuine thing about it, was that Flint was, as one would imagine, a rich guy. And rich guys in the early 1900s had all kinds of leeway that even rich guys in our in our current world maybe don't necessarily have. Think about this. When this boat debuted, this yacht, it made headlines in the New York Times. And why did it do that? Well, it was dubbed a torpedo yacht. So we read this story from the New York Times in the year 1900, and the title is Yacht That Will Go 42 Miles an Hour. Subtitle. Charles R. Flint's craft, probably the fastest vessel afloat. Sub-subtitle, built like a torpedo boat. Sub-sub-subtitle, rumor is she's intended for one of the South American republics. So this guy built basically a disguised warship in his, uh, in his own pocket. You know, he built this thing to effectively call a yacht, but then be able to ship, uh, sell to foreign governments uh, to make a torpedo boat out of it. So... I'll read you a little bit of the story because I find it to be very interesting and certainly uh, indicative of the times of the early 1900s. Nyack, New York, October 31st, 1900. There was launched today at the air shipyards, this place, what will probably be the fastest vessel afloat. The craft is a steam yacht, Arrow, designed by C.D. Mother for Charles R. Flint of New York City. According to the general report, her guaranteed speed is 42 miles an hour, and it's believed that under pressure even this rate can be exceeded. The remarkable speed which the arrow is expected to develop is not her only interesting feature. 
When work was begun upon the yacht last winter, she was said to be intended for Mr. Flint's personal use and is such still her ostensible purpose. It's rumored here, however, that she is being built for delivery to one of the South American republics as a torpedo boat. Her plans, so far as they have been made public, tend to confirm these reports. The model is said to show an armament of four rapid-fire guns and two torpedo tubes. It's also said that the American Ordnance Company, of which Mr. Flynn is president, is building its Bridgeport Works the guns that are to equip the Arrow. Mr. Flint's former service as an agent for several of the South American governments in the purchase of vessels and their equipment as men of war is cited in the confirmation of the Arrow's reported commission. The story then goes on to describe the construction and engineering of the yacht. In appearance, the new boat resembles a thick darning needle. Her bow is drawn out to a sharp edge and there's a very slight resistance to the water. On the water, the yacht measures 130 feet, while her extreme beam is only 12 feet 6 inches. The extreme draft is 5 feet, and this is reduced to 2 feet 6 inches at the stern. Her frame is of finely tempered steel, and the hull consists of two sheets of mahogany planking, between which lies a canvas coating treated with cement paint. The deck is made from aluminum, with canvas-covered white pine flooring. Inboard are accommodations for a crew of 25 men and a private stateroom for her owner. The Arrow will have twin screws, each driven by a quadruple expansion steam engine. These are capable of developing 6,000 horsepower. An electric light plant that will provide 60 lights of 16 candle power and a searchlight of 3,000 candle power is also included in the yacht's equipment. Her coal bunkers will hold 18 tons and her coal carrying capacity can be doubled in case of emergency. The total weight of the Arrow, when complete, will be little more than 60 tons. The boilers and engines will weigh about 31 tons. It's estimated on a coal consumption of 1.5 tons per day, the yacht can make 16 knots an hour, and that on a consumption of 2.5 tons per day, her speed can reach 25 knots an hour. The story goes on to say that the vessel will head to Newark and then go out on some sea trials, but the point of the exercise to me here is the fact that you have a guy that was formerly involved in the government somehow of South American countries uh, in their purchase of uh, war materials, uh, basically privately building warships and selling them back to the South American governments. It seems like we live in a weird time. I do believe that the early 1900s may be weirder than the time we live in here just because this is a pretty wild story, and it wasn't even uncommon. Uh, the research I did, the idea of a torpedo yacht uh, became a fairly in vogue thing for rich guys to build because they would end up with a cool pleasure boat that they could drive around for a while, and then once they got a little tired of it, they would sell it to a foreign government and make a bunch of money. They would then repaint it and uh, mildly refit it for their more uh, seafaring uh, maritime war-style crews, and then they would have themselves a torpedo boat to patrol their shores. No, none of these were big enough to be like ocean-going, sink-the-major-league battleship type of ships, but they were great shore patrol boats, and with the speed they made, they could be very pesky. There is no record that I can find of any of these uh, torpedo yachts, if you will, used in any sort of notable combat or any sort of notable naval engagements, but just the idea that guys like Charles Flint could look around and go, you know what we're going to do? We're going to build a private yacht that also has torpedo tubes and guns, and we're going to sail it down to the South American continent, and we'll go ahead and just sell it to whoever the highest bidder is. It's kind of a weird thing. So around this time, when we start talking about the power boats and power launches and, and auto boats, which are what they were called at the time, automobile boats, these are the type of boats we're going to concentrate the rest of this discussion on because these are the type of boats that rapidly rise in performance. And they rise in performance for a couple of very good reasons. Engines begin to shrink down, power levels go up, and the hull designs that can be made on small boats uh, become more fortuitous. You can make more use of the power. 
1904, one of the first kind of big deal powerboat races was held on the Hudson River. And again, we talk about automobile boats and power launches was what the initial name of these craft were. And power launch was a, a phrase that was used for many, many years uh, following this era. That one kind of hung around. But it was a man named Carl Riot in a boat called the Standard, which had 100 horsepower in line six that made 25 miles an hour to who set the fastest pace of the race. And in many ways, I think we really kind of begin to lock our discussion in on where this water speed record officially begins. Yes, the arrow went 42 miles an hour at that same time in history, but the arrow was not in any sort of a state to kind of grow, go any faster, get any better than that. The power boats that we talk about here, the automobile boats, are the ones where we begin racing them. We see the competition rise, we see the hull designs, and of course the engine designs kick ahead. And it should be noted that Carl Riot was the lead engineer of the Standard Auto Company, so he was an auto executive at the time. And this fits a interesting bill that we'll be telling really throughout the rest of the story. And that's the fact that this is a, for the most part, with notable exception, and we'll talk about those notable exceptions, this is a realm of performance and record setting that is reserved for the ultra wealthy, for the nobility, and for people who have just a load of money to spend on whatever they feel like spending. And Charles Riot at the time, or Carl Riot rather at the time in 1904, certainly was one of those guys. That 100 horsepower boat had a pretty significant inline six engine we're talking just one of these monstrous old school almost stationary engines that they mounted into a hull and it managed to kind of slog its way through the water at 25 miles an hour at this time in history there was no such thing as a hydroplane we'll talk about the invention and the perfection of all that type of stuff so these were a displacement style hull and that's a term i want you to remember and we'll be using that so a displacement style hull is just that as the boat is going through the water, the hull is displacing the water underneath the boat. It's not trying to go over it. It is physically going through it. And so we move ahead now about five years and go to 1910. When we move to 1910, we can start to talk about a real escalation, if you will, in this war of having the fastest boat. And by 1910, it has started to become almost an international contest. In fact, it has become an international contest. There's something called the Harmsworth Cup. The Gold Cup was established, and the competition heats way up, as does the danger level. Let's move in now to 1910 in the era of powerboat racing. So by 1910, the idea of competing on the water, setting records, going very fast has advanced rapidly. And it's advanced rapidly because the technology of building engines that would make these boats go faster has advanced rapidly. Now, all of a sudden, you can have manageable sized engines that make a couple hundred horsepower. And all of a sudden, you can now start mounting those engines in multiples inside the hulls of watercraft. And it has become a weird kind of uh, international contest to see which country builds the best and the fastest boats. So... So it's time to talk about a couple of significant boats from this era. And we kick this off with a story in the Gazette of Montreal, Quebec, Canada from September 11th, rather September 2nd, 1911. Title of the story is Dixie 4 is a Wonder. Subtitle, literally leapt from wave to wave on her trials. And the story reads as follows. In a stiff northeast wind and lumpy sea yesterday and over the international course in Huntington Bay, the Dixie 4 one of the defenders of the British International Trophy, flying the Ambergee of the Motorboat Club of America, covered an irregular course of 22 knots in 33 minutes 7 seconds. This is the opening race of the American Elimination Trial races. 
This was at the rate of 39.86 nautical or 45.9 land miles per hour, the fastest speed that has yet been shown by a gasoline-driven craft in this country, in competition, or anywhere in the world. The performance by the Dixie 4 was so credible that an hour after the race ended, the regatta committee consisting of Henry Stuffin, the chairman, Victor Cunnock of the Motorboat Club of America, announced that the boat had been arbitrarily selected as one of the trio of high-speed vessels to defend the trophy on behalf of this country. Under the committee's ruling, the Dixie 4 will not take part in any more elimination trials, her showing yesterday having exceeded the most hopeful of expectations. The Dixie speed is essentially a record in every particular. Heretofore, motorboats credited with the fast runs have raced under favorable weather conditions, but the circumstances surrounding yesterday's trial were the most unfavorable imaginable. Instead of the clear skies and light air and a smooth sea, in Huntington Bay was at its worst. A heavy nor'easter had whipped the water into a rough sea and a cold, biting rain added to everybody's discomfort. On the run from Lloyd's Neck to the mark northeast of Eaton's Neck, the seas were so lumpy that it looked as if racers would have to abandon the contest and seek shelter. But the Dixie Four, undismayed by the roughness, continued on her course at a marvelous rate, throwing huge volumes of white spray to the starboard and port, leaving a trail of foam in her wake for 300 feet. As the speedy craft crossed the final when whistles and sirens screamed, the pleasure craft anchored nearby gave a tumultuous welcome that must have been gratifying to the members of the victorious boat's crew. The Dixie Four and the Nameless Two were started from a mark half a mile north of the Chateau Beaux Arts, and Clinton H. Crane, the designer of the former, expressed his opinion to the regatta committee that it would be decidedly unsafe to send the boat beyond Lloyd's Neck on account of the heavy seas. On his recommendation, the course was shortened from 7.5 knots to 5.5 knots. The steam yacht Vergana, Commodore Melville's flagship, and the steam yacht Anhamba, the property of August Heckscher, were sent out to service the turning marks for a shorter course, the former taking up anchorage in the northeast of Eaton's Neck and the latter anchoring to the westward of Lloyd's Neck. Had the original course been followed, it is certain that serious trouble would have been experienced, and it's doubtful that the nameless two or their narrow beam and short overall length would have lived through the going. Five minutes before the starting signal, Dixie 4, with Vice Commodore Fred Burnham, MCA, one of the syndicate of owners of the ship, sent the boat underway. After making a short circuit of the first leg, he brought the Dixie 4 straight for the starting line. With extraordinary judgment and without slowing down, he approached the line at the rate of 45 land miles an hour, and two seconds after the starting signal had been fired, she shot across amid cheers of scores of spectators. It was the perfect start, and one that has seldom been equaled for accuracy. It goes on to talk about the performance of the boat, and I want to skip to this one part of the, uh, the story where it, it speaks to Mr. Burnham after the triumph. Before the race, Mr. Burnham said that the cost of the Dixie up to that date was $16,211.40. But I forgot to mention, we've just ordered Southwester's worth $9, he said. Must be a fashion item of the day. The boat is 39 feet 6 inches overall and is fitted with two crane motors of 500 total horsepower capable of turning 1,000 revolutions a minute. She has 16 cylinders and twin screws of the monotype. type. In a yesterday's contest, she was run at less than 800 revolutions and was practically racing at three-quarters speed. In a trial on Tuesday, she is said to have shown a speed of 57 miles an hour. I've never seen such a sight before, said Mr. Crane in speaking of the Dixie Four. She simply jumped from wave to wave and only touched the high spots. It truly was wonderful. So, you have the Dixie Four, which is the great American hope. Now, the British International Trophy, henceforth known as the, the Harmsworth Cup, had to be renamed because the Americans won it back in like 2008, and they were, or rather 1908, and they were not giving it back. So it took a little while, but it was renamed instead of the British International Trophy when they could not win it back. Uh, the name was changed. 
But when we talk about the race and, and these speeds, you know, it's kind of funny. It's almost quaint. We talk about this boat going 45 miles an hour, and it used what was known now as a single-step hydroplane hull. Let's talk about that, and let's explain what that means, because as we move in this story, hull design will be a very central part and central feature. If we could picture it, look, picture in your mind a really cool, old-school, almost a Chris Craft-style boat, very long, very sharp V-style hull. At the rear of the hull, there is a notch cut straight up and back. That is the step, meaning three-quarters of the way, maybe seven-eighths of the way down the boat, the hull abruptly stops, goes straight up in a 90-degree angle, and heads to the rear of the boat. It does this because when you get the boat up to speed, it naturally wants to lay back, which takes that V-hull out of the water. This is the earliest kind of way that boat builders are able to gain speed because of the fact that as you plow into the throttle, the engine rears the boat back, the front of the nose comes up, and you're able to plane across the top of the water instead of plowing straight through it. That really does help the performance of the boat. This single-step style hull was later replaced by a multiple-step hull. What they figured out was if you put a couple of steps in instead of just one, you're able to work that boat back in a more even, controllable fashion. So the reason that the Dixie 4 was chosen, because of the fact that it performed so well in its trials, it certainly had its work cut out for it. This race was not just going to be a walkover because the English contingent sent their best ships across the sea as well. I say ships, they actually are boats, those of you that are of the nautical persuasion. One of them was known as the Maple Leaf 3. The Maple Leaf 3 was a multi-step style hull, and it was, by any measure, very much faster than the Dixie 4. Even though that story we just read out of the newspaper claimed the Dixie 4 was the fastest in the world, the Maple Leaf 3 had gone at 56 miles an hour. 46 miles an hour was the best the Dixie 4 had had run. So it was a little bit of uh, maybe jingoism in that that last story wanted to maintain and and kind of prove the uh, the American supremacy here. Uh, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle out of Brooklyn, New York, September 3rd, 1911, ran a front page story: "Speedy Motorboats of America and England Ready for the First Race." And the Dixie 4 would have a good outing with its two five, 250 horsepower V8 engines. But the Maple Leaf 3, the English Challenger, was just too much for them to handle. The good news was that the Maple Leaf 3 was not all that reliable. It was able to set a speed record. It was unable to actually win the event. So the Maple Leaf ended up running 57 miles an hour. It was 40 feet long, had that multi-step hull, and used two 350-horsepower V12 engines. So the 750-horsepower of the and, the, you know, when we talk about these V12s, why would they be faster than a pair of V8s beyond the hull? The, v, the V12 engines likely had a much shorter stroke, which allowed them to run at a higher RPM, which allowed them to spin their propellers faster. And propeller RPM at this time in history was kind of a make or break on speed. You know, propellers at this time were basically two-bladed. If you can think about it, we think about a, a boat propeller now and how beautifully crafted they are and, and, and almost aerodynamic looking, hydrodynamic, if you will. Back then, it was uh, about as basic as an airplane propeller. It had two had two wings on it, and it would be spun through the water. The faster you spun it, the, the faster your ship and craft could actually go. Now, when the Maple Leaf went 57 miles an hour, it was certainly seen as a huge accomplishment. The Maple Leaf would go on to have a successful racing career. Dixie 4 had a pretty successful career as well. The unfortunate part of the, uh, the Dixie 4, if you will, is when it's about six months after the race, the, the craft was at another event racing 
uh, up by Buffalo, New York, and it crashed and killed a spectator, actually killed a young boy. So that crashed the boat. Uh, the boat was never really fully repaired. It was never sent back out. And the Crane brothers who built the engines for it and did a lot of the design were out of powerboat racing at that point. They did not want to be involved in it anymore. They did not uh, feel it was safe, and they, they felt that they did not want to um, kind of risk their risk their reputations, if you will, on that sport. But with the Maple Leaf and certainly with the Dixie, the idea that you could go and make these hull design changes and then certainly feed them more horsepower and you'd have a, a much faster boat were the, the two breakthrough designs there. There is a book, and it's a fantastic book I've used as a great resource, called The World Water Speed Record by a guy named Roy Colley. And this book is an unflinching look back at the history of the water speed record. It's very detailed. It's an incredible, incredible trip through time, and it, it pretty much is the definitive history of this. Now, I'm going to vary on some things here, and I'm not going to dispute anything Mr. Colley says, but I'm also not going to go into the raw depth that he does. I want to make sure the show is uh, of a somewhat manageable length. But let's jump from 1911 to 1915. The lessons learned on the earlier boats that we talked about, the Dixie, the Maple Leaf, get translated, and now the goal is to try to go 60 miles an hour. Still, four years later, nobody has gone 60 miles an hour on the water yet. There's a guy named Christopher Columbus Smith out of Algonac, Michigan, that is a boat builder, and he will turn into one of the central figures in this story. There is a group of investors that are interested in building a craft that can go 60 miles an hour on the water. They want to take this craft and, and make it into a world-class winner, and they feel like they can make money by doing exhibitions with it and certainly racing it at events like the Harmsworth Cup and others. So they build this boat. It's called Miss Detroit, and it's fast and it's successful, but it also bankrupts the guys that invested in it, and it does not break the 60-mile-an-hour barrier. So now we go to our book, The World Water Speed Record by Roy Colley, and talk about the next iteration, and I quote, Mr. Detroit 1 was fast, but not fast enough, and fell short of the mile-a-minute title. The syndicate lost interest and could no longer afford to continue, so Smith started all over again and built Miss Minneapolis for three eager sportsmen from the area. He piloted it himself, and in an effort to sell it to any prospective owner, he took it down a measured half-mile of Put-in Bay in Ohio at the Interlake Yachting Association. Over four runs, he averaged 66.66 miles an hour, and it was an astonishing speed never before seen on water. It was some 16 years since a car had reached that same velocity. It's also worth noting that at the stage in 1915, the world land speed record, which was officially ratified, stood at 124.1 miles an hour. Nonetheless, it was impressive enough, and that afternoon on September 6th, the New York Times headline, Powerboat Queen, and followed with wins one-mile title and sets new record in burst of dazzling speed. Christopher Smith's reputation was made, and his chance meeting with Gar Wood at that time was to have serious impact on powerboat racing and the attainment of speed on water. Before that, a surprising figure was to make an impact on the fastest vessel on water chase. You will not believe the man who is about to enter this story in the 1919 time frame. You're not going to believe the craft he built, and you're certainly not going to believe how fast it went. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. 
Visit DeerVendors.com to learn more. The man's name that enters this water speed record contest in 1919 is Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, an incredibly brilliant man. He has an idea for a vessel, the likes of which the world has never seen before, the likes of which the world will forget about soon after he built it, but the likes of which will be the fastest thing on water for a very short period of time, but nonetheless a period of time. He builds something known as a hydrodome. And a hydrodome is a vehicle that nearly defies description, but I'm going to try. Basically, what Alexander Graham Bell crafts, along with his uh, partner Casey Baldwin, is something called the HD4. And if you can picture this, and I am going to ask you at times in this show to go to Google Images and look at some of this stuff, because as best I'm going to try to explain it to you, it is so kind of beyond what anybody's perception of a modern vessel looks like, you will not be able to see it in your mind's eye. As good as I am, as I think I am at this, it's going to be very difficult to actually equate this physical uh, vehicle into words that you'll be able to understand. But think of it this way. Think of it as the center section of an airplane, that kind of tubular shape of an airplane, which is the hull. Think of two very large uh, Liberty aircraft engines with propellers mounted above the hull, just like you'd expect to find in, an, in a seaplane style arrangement. It's designed to float and is certainly designed to move very quickly. What this has going for it that up to this point in time nobody had tried yet are underwater hydrofoils. And these hydrofoils, if we can think about it, are almost like ladders under the water. There are wings under the water. As this vehicle would increase in speed, it would these hydrofoils would raise the hull off of the surface of the water. The faster it went, the higher it rose. The higher it rose, the smaller surface it was planing on. So when we think about this idea, what Alexander Graham Bell has done in this particular instance, in a very extreme way, has proven the point that the further you get away from the mass of the boat being in the water, the faster you're going to be able to go. This vehicle did not use a propeller. It was using the the power of the propeller engines, it did not use a propeller in the water, I should say. It was using the power of the aircraft engines with their airborne propellers to move it along. And it was able to go 70 miles an hour on a pair of twin 400 horsepower engines. This was a just a very bizarre looking craft. And once they got the, the hydrofoils kind of, I don't want to say perfected, but once they got the hydrofoils even close to figured out, and they would increase the speed, and it would raise up higher and go faster and faster, it was a revelation. And it was something that Alexander Graham Bell felt would be a very highly profitable enterprise. He thought this craft would be the interest of almost any Navy on the world. He thought it would be very interested to people with uh, you know, a ferry-style service. He really thought that what he had stumbled upon, not stumbled upon, what he had proven to himself here was that this was going to be a craft that would change the way people went across the water. Well, as is usually the case, uh, that didn't happen. In fact, not only did it not happen, very few people actually really cared about it. Now, it did make headlines, of course, in the newspapers, and those headlines were, were, they were favorable, and they were a little bit too well-placed for them to be just randomly some reporter. I do believe Bell probably had a press agent. That press agent probably did a pretty good job placing some of these stories, like this one in the New York Herald. New York, New York, November 30th, 1919. This is a centerpiece of the Sunday paper, a story written by Robert G. Skerritt, if that's even your real name, sir. 
entitled Marvel of Marine Architecture, perfected by inventor of telephone and his collaborator Baldwin, skims the surface at 70 miles an hour. And the story reads as follows. A mechanical water bug capable of making 70 miles an hour is the latest contribution to science, sport, commerce, and national defense. True, the technical designation of this is Hydrodome, but from a spectacular point of view, the creation may not be improperly likened to those tiny little insects that skim about with amazing speed upon a watery surface, apparently defying the accepted laws of flotation. This development in marine architecture we owe to Dr. Alexander Graham Bell and his able engineering collaborator, F.W. Baldwin. To the public, generally, Dr. Bell stands forth as the brilliant physicist who blazed the way for the modern indispensable telephone. But Dr. Bell's imaginative mind and his con- his, has contributed many other inventions to his workaday world of ours. And besides, it's been ceaselessly active in trying the late nature's secrets and showing her how the forces and phenomenon might be just to put into helpful service. The story goes on to talk really a lot about the the things that this ship is able to do, uh, how large it is, how fast it is, why it's not a hydroplane, which I think is interesting. The hydroplane, of course, maintains direct contact to some degree with the water, whereas this takes the entire hull and takes it out of it. What I think we need to speak about in this story, which is really interesting, is the section where it talks about how the hull raises with speed. So we skip to about three-quarters of the way through. Very comprehensive story. As I said, this was likely placed here, uh, maybe a little bit of a paid situation here, because this is a uh, probably 2,000-word story about this particular ship, which I'm not going to give you all 2,000 words, but it's uh, it's something that does really go into a lot of depth beyond what we'd expect out of a normal newspaper coverage. In this section of the story titled, Hull Raises with Speed, here we see the difference between the astounding action of the air in connection with the wings of a flying machine and the buoyant impulse of water when in, contra- in contact with the hydrofoils moving through it at high speed. As Mr. Nutty describes, they're working. The greater the speed, the higher the hull raises out of the water, automatically reducing the lifting surface to the amount needed to support the load. These planes are unbelievably small until we remember that the supporting surface required to carry a given load is in inverse proportion to the density of the medium in which it acts. The specific gravity of salt water is nearly 600 times that of air, rather 800 times that of air. And that means that the lifting surface, if acting on water, needs to be but 1 800th the size required for air. In other words, an airplane carrying the same load would need an an hydrofoil or an aerofoil 800 times as large as the hydrofoils of HD4. Those to the characteristics of these two mediums, these proportions may not be exactly correct, but it is an approximation. And so it will be seen, therefore, that the structural difficulty so far as the supporting surface is concerned is insignificant. The loss of squares and cubes will not be the nightmare for the designer of the future hydrodome as it is for the airplane designer. As already explained, the, the pontoons, when clear of the water, become in effect wings, and their action of the air undoubtedly gives a measurable degree of lift, similarly to the difference of the struts and the braces, which work as the part of the supporting framework by which the two motors are bound above the hull of HD4. According to Mr. Nutting, the function of this air surface, as well as that of the deck of the two pontoons, is to provide an air cushioning effect which plays the part of shock absorber when the machine is traveling in disturbed water. Again, he tells us, the machine travels with a slight undulation, somewhat like that of a Pullman car, a decidedly agreeable quality to anyone who has ridden in a modern 60-mile-an-hour hydroplane in choppy water where the effect is more like traveling over rocks 
being heaved on a runway in terms of a wagon without springs. So that's an interesting kind of way that they talk about this idea of lifting the hull out of the water, of why this thing's able to make the speed, and one would understand why they'd think this was such a great advancement, and it is a great advancement, but one would really think, man, Bell thinks he's really hit the jackpot here. At this time in his life, Alexander Graham Bell was quite a wealthy man, not only with the telephone, but his other inventions. Unfortunately, uh, the craft was kind of roundly rejected by the the militaries. They showed it to basically anybody that would listen, and nobody bought into it. Some of the technology initially was thought to be applied to seaplanes, which there was a lot of at this time in history when you know the idea of running a big plane down a runway was less appealing than a larger seaplane that could take off from basically anywhere on the water. So after the fact, um, what happens? The same thing that happens to so many of these uh, these awesome inventions is it just sits there and rots on the side of the ocean. So when we talk about the end of this craft, we kind of talk about its biggest day, which was September 19th, or September 9th, rather, 1919, when Casey Baldwin piloted the boat to a speed of 70.86 miles an hour, beating the standing record of 66 miles an hour by four, and Hydrodome became the fastest vessel on water. We quote again the World Water Speed Record. Although both the British Admiralty and the United States Navy witnessed the run, neither considered making an order for the boat now that the First World War was at an end. The craft lay on the shores of Nova Scotia and was hardly used again. With Alexander Graham Bell dying just three years later, and it was an invention that was effectively lost among some of man's finest achievements. He will, though, forever be associated in nautical circles with designing a successful water speed record boat. Pretty neat stuff that Alexander Graham Bell plays a cameo, if not an insignificant one, here to move things ahead. Now we talk about 1920, and now we begin to get into this era where there's media coverage beyond just newspapers for a lot of this stuff. And I know I've been a lot of talking and not as much kind of audio that you're used to, but we're moving into the audio portion of this thing where we're going to hear a lot of these craft that were setting records. And when we get into 1920, it's time to talk about a guy named Gar Wood. And Gar Wood is a superhero in this story, one of the most brilliant mechanical minds in American history, and someone who you're going to come out thinking is a pretty badass dude by the time we're done here. So when we start to talk about Gar Wood, it's important to understand who this guy is and what he did and how central he'll become to the idea, the identity of fast American boats and about this international pride that the country had regarding taking on the British and everybody else for the powerboating world. Garwood invented the hydraulic lift for a dump truck. And it seems like a, a small thing, but it was a revolutionary thing. He was a guy that was very inventive, intuitively very smart. He and his brothers and sisters were remarkably successful. He had a, a multitude of brothers and sisters, and they all went on to own companies and, and be kind of... Um, industrialists or creators or they were all highly successful they were not drinkers they were not smokers they were not really anything and it was basically gar and his brother george out of all these kids were the only two that really caught the bug of racing gar was um, again intuitively mechanically genius he was a young guy he saw somebody trying to unload a, a truck full of coal and back in the day uh, before the hydraulic dump truck existed that was a hand crank job you had to hand crank the bed of the truck up it was backbreaking work, and he looked at it, 
took a piece of a hydraulic ram off of a boat that his father had, and a, this hydraulic ram was somehow used to reverse the engines on this ferry boat his dad had, uh, used one of those hydraulic rams, attached it to a truck chassis, built a pumping system for it, and lo and behold, at the basically move of a handle, uh, you could dump an entire truck bed with an immense amount of weight in it. And Garwood would parlay that one invention into a multitude of different things. Uh, he invented a hydraulic winch that became, um, you know, almost ubiquitous on army trucks and stuff like that during the World War One time frame. So needless to say, Garwood was, by the time we start talking about the late teens, was an incredibly wealthy man. And we mentioned that boat earlier, the Miss Detroit boat, that was not fast enough to set the mile-a-minute mark on water that was built by Christopher Columbus Smith, which we'll just shorten to Chris Smith. Garwood bought that boat, and as a, as a proud guy of his time, he uh, went into a meeting where that boat was going to be auctioned off. You know, As I mentioned, that boat was owned by several different people. They had this syndicate, if you will. And the owners were trying to figure out what they were going to do. They were going to raffle it, do all this other stuff. They wanted $1,800 for it. Big amount of money at the time. And Wood, who nobody had any idea who he was uh, in that particular crowd of people, raised his hand at the back of the room, said, um, I'll give you 1000 bucks on the spot, and I'll give you the rest of it over the next couple of months. And um, they said yes. They took. It wasn't like it was a big debate. They, they thought they were going to lose their shirts on this thing, and they kind of did. But they sold it for the, uh, for the, the asking price. Garwood bought it, immediately began to race it, and immediately, within like two days, hired Chris Smith and bought his company. He bought Chris Smith's company, hired him as his boat builder and designer, and it was one of the most brilliant things that he could have possibly done. And this is what executives do, right? This is what smart people do. They recognize talent, and they uh, employ that talent to the best of their ability. So after he buys Miss Detroit, the C.C. Smith & Boat Engine Company also comes under his um, comes under his purview and ownership. And this was in 1916. By 1917, um, he is beginning to just dominate powerboat racing in America. And in 1920, after, after just mangling everybody in this country, he decided to go international and take on the, uh, the Harmsworth Cup. And he did this with a series of boats known as Miss America. And these are some of the most beautiful powerboats ever built. They are some of the fastest powerboats, certainly of their era. I mean, he uh, did not waste any time as far as the record setting went, as far as bringing the, uh, bringing the fight to the rest of the world. And when we start talking about his early records, this is a, this is a boat that was built with two 500-horsepower uh, Liberty engines, which are normally found in airplanes at the time. In 1921, he went 80.567 miles an hour blasting the current record by 10 numbers, becoming the first man to go over 80 miles an hour on the water. Now, in 1921, he sets that record, and as we look at the timeline of record setting for not only Garwood, but just the way everything went, 1921, he goes to 80. In 1924, a guy named Jules Fisher, and I'm not going to go down this road very far because it's just bizarre, he builds a thing called the Farman Hydroglider, which is effectively an airplane that just flies very low over the water. And it does at some point touch the water. So Hydroglider was given the record in 1924 at 87 miles an hour. Then we go back to 1928 and get back on track here with the Wood Brothers. So in 1928, uh, the record now moved up to 87. And during a, uh, a competition, if you will, uh, Garwood, unable to set the record in his fresh boat, but 
thankfully, Miss America 7, driven by his brother George, became the first craft to go over 90 miles an hour on the water, going 92 miles an hour. And at this point, the boats are using these big Packard engines. Again, we're taking aircraft engines still to this point to make these big speeds. And these are these are some of the most powerful vehicles on the planet at this point. Locomotives at this time, the big giant steam locomotives are making thousands of horsepower. But when we talk about the, the records that are being set and how they're being set, as far as piston-driven stuff, internal combustion stuff, these are um, these are some of the nastiest records set. The newspaper reporting of the 92-mile-an-hour record was big time. We look back at the Brooklyn, New York Times Union on September 4, 1928, an AP story entitled Speedboat Goes 92 Miles an Hour, subtitled Garwood's Miss America 7, driven by his brother, shatters all records. Detroit, September 4th. Garwood's new Miss America 7, driven by his brother George, broke all speedboat records today when it averaged 92.838 statute miles an hour for six laps over the one nautical mile course on the Detroit River. Garwood was engaged in taking pictures of his racer as his brother broke the record. He said he preferred to let his brother drive to set the new record as George created the old national record of 80.5 miles an hour in his Miss America 2. The previous national record never has been recognized by the International Motorboat Yacht Union because it was made over a statute mile course, but today's run was over a nautical mile course, which is approximately 15% longer than a statute mile. Orland Johnson, Wood's veteran mechanic, handled the throttle for George Wood today. He was at the engine when Garwood won the British International Race for the Harmsworth Trophy in the Detroit Yacht Club Regatta Saturday and yesterday. He said the twin 12-cylinder engines were not turning more than 2,300 revolutions per minute at any time during the trial, and they're capable of 2,500 RPM. Higher gears on the propeller made its speed 3,450 RPM, but Johnson said that the two Wood brothers believe in a different propeller type will allow a Miss America 7 to travel at 100 miles per hour. And this is when we arrive at a seminal moment in this entire chase. 100 miles an hour suddenly becomes a conversation point and certainly becomes something that the world wants to chase. The British have been, I don't want to say humiliated, but the British have been put back in a place that they are not comfortable with in chasing these Americans. The British have held the land speed record for many years. They pride themselves on being a very technically advanced society, of course, and these records are a moment and a piece of national pride. So to have Gar Wood and the Wood brothers, George included, kind of eating their lunch for him, beating him in their Harmsworth Cup, making him look bad in the process, it doesn't sit very well. And it doesn't sit very well for one particular guy named Harry Seagrave. And Harry Seagrave is determined to take the record back for England. And by the time Seagrave decides to make a full pull at trying to set the water speed record, it is hovering at a 93 miles an hour. Garwood's able to bump it about one mile per hour the year after his brother does it. So 1929, the record is 93.123 miles an hour as set by Miss America 7 and its two big giant V12 engines. Seagrave is a worldwide hero. Henry Seagrave, at this point in his life, has won the French Grand Prix, becomes the first Briton to ever do it, is a motor racing phenom, is a war hero, is a guy who is now the land speed record holder of the world, and the Golden Arrow, some of his fantastic cars that he had built over the years. This guy is England personified. He is he is quite literally knighted by the British government, and he decides after his latest land speed racing foray that he's going to get out of cars, 
and that he's going to get into boats. And when he decides to get into boats, he does not take this lightly. For the national kind of honor of England, he wants to get out there and he wants to get the thing back for his country. So Henry Seagrave decides to really throw his entire effort into this, and by doing that, he kind of turns this into a national effort for England. A boat is constructed named Miss England. The first Miss England does not have the greatest luck. It's not that fast, but Miss England too, using some um, advancements, if you will, in both hull and power technology, uses a pair of Rolls-Royce Type R V12 engines, making 3,600 horsepower, using a stepped hull, a single-stepped hull, mind you, not a multi-stepped hull, is capable, at least on paper, of breaking the record. It's tested. It is tested significantly. And each time it's tested, they inch it ahead a little bit faster and a little bit stronger. And the idea here is that they are going to show Garwood and everybody else in the world what for because they're going to go out there and they're going to run 100 miles an hour, not only break the record, but be the first to get England's honor back and set the first water speed record at over 100 miles an hour. There is a small problem with this in the fact that Seagrave, um, other than the testing they've done, really has not done a whole lot of boating in his life, especially at this speed. In fact, no travel, uh, no human has ever traveled at this speed over the course of, uh, of water. No one's broken that 100-mile-an-hour barrier. That's why they feel it's so important for them to do it. Using their two Rolls-Royce engines, they do their testing, and they finally decide to go to Lake Windermere in England, and they decide on the 13th of June, 1930, to really get after it. And on the 13th of June of 1930, they did, setting the record at 98 miles an hour, tantalizingly close to that 100-mile-an-hour barrier that they are so desperate to break. Now, I should mention, June 13th, 1930, was a Friday. And what Henry Seagrave decided to do after setting the record at 98 miles an hour was effectively turn right around and try to go 100. Making his third run on the same day trying to break 100 miles an hour, something goes horribly wrong. Now, the idea of what went wrong has been speculated on by many, many people. Most people are saying, in every account that I have read, including the book The World Water Speed Record, is that the boat struck a submerged log or something submerged in the water at likely over 100 miles an hour because the first run they made going across the lake was successful at over 100. All he had to do was come back even close. If he had only run 99, he still would have set that average over 100 because to set the record, he had to go one way, turn around within an hour, and come back the other way, and the average of the two would be the record speed. And I quote from the World Water Speed Record of Roy Calley. At 1.15 p.m., Miss England 2 was towed into position, but what followed was tragic. These are the words of one of his two riding mechanics, Michael Wilcox, as he reproduced the wonderful biography of Seagrave written by Cyril Postumus. On the way, Sir Henry made an alteration in the program. Instead of returning to the boathouse after a run in each direction to fit the other propeller, he decided to do two runs at only just over the record speed. You and I, Hallowell, will take the times of the first run, and if not good enough for the average, I will increase slightly on the return. Then, if everything's okay, I'll run her up again, all out, and see how much she'll go over 120. I hope to heaven she'll behave herself. I said, she'll be all right, sir. Friday the 13th is my lucky day. Sir Henry smiled and said, that's something anyway. He goes on to describe the, the run across the water. The first run is very smooth. And now he describes the second run. I glanced at Sir Henry. He was smiling and evidently delighted. The water temperatures of the engines were rising and getting very close to the maximum allowed, and the water control was full open. 
I glanced ahead to see how much further we had to go as I would soon have to ask for less revs. Then there was a slight thud from the front of the boat. We straightened and then to starboard and straightened up again. The bows were rising. She oughtn't do this. Going over. Water coming up to meet. Bang. Everything went yellow. I couldn't see very well when I at last scrambled to the surface. There was Vic Hallowell quiveringly, gent- quivering gently and sinking a few yards away, no movement of his limbs, leaving just a swirl of water. A figure went past me, jerking along backwards, no movement of arms. He also disappeared, and I was alone. Miss England, too. A dark, blurred mass and two air cushions just a few yards away. I longed to catch hold of something, but I could make no progress, couldn't use my eyes, and was gasping for breath. I slithered across one of the hatches and went under again. I could see better, but no sign of the others. Everything gray and utterly desolate, and I felt horribly scared. Needless to say, Seagrave was dead. His mechanic was dead. And perhaps the largest sportsman-related tragedy in the history of England had occurred on Lake Windermere on June 13, 1930. The first tragic disaster of the year was the death of Sir Henry Seagrave in creating the world's water speed record on Lake Windermere. And so Sir Henry Seagrave becomes the first death in chasing the water speed record. Almost appropriate that it happens as he's trying to go 100 miles an hour, a a number that would have just been astonishing to anybody even a few years hence that was trying to get this record. When Seagrave died, it was international news. It was not just a story that was uh, maintained to England because he was very famous in the United States. As he was setting those land speed records over the course of his life, those records were largely set on Lake, or rather on Ormond Beach in Florida uh, and in other places in the United States. So he was very well known in this country. We go to the Waxahachie Daily Light out of Waxahachie, Texas, June 13th, 1930. Remember, same day. Think of that. 1930, same day newspaper coverage. That's how big a deal this was. And this comes from the Associated Press. Terrific speed over Lake brings death to Seagrave. England, June 13th. Major H.O. Seagrave, speedboat pilot of Miss England II, was hurtling across the waters of Lake Windermere at more than 100 miles an hour for a new speed record when the boat suddenly dived like a bullet today, hurling her crew of three into the water, injuring Seagrave fatally. Sir Henry and his mechanic, E. Wilcox, was taken out of the water in a daring rescue by a man and a woman spectator. The other mechanic, E. Hollowell, appears to above who, to have surfaced above the water. At the hospital... Here, Seagrave was found to have both arms and a rib broken and died from his injuries. Wilcox died from a broken thigh. Seagrave was one of the most noted automobile speed drivers in the world. He already held the auto speed record of 231 miles an hour made in Florida and shortly before the accident had set a new motorboat record with a 98.76 mile an hour pass. The record was made on two runs which preceded the third and fatal one. Seagraves was estimated to be going well over 100 miles an hour on the third run when the boat, roaring over the water with a deafening noise, suddenly disappeared in a great show and shower of water. Hundreds of spectators saw the accident, and all warning of the craft hurried to the scene. 
It remained for a spectator named King to make the first gallant attempt at rescue. King dived into the water fully clothed and brought up Seagrave. A woman helped them both into the boat and then fainted. The cause of the accident was not known immediately. We read another story. This one comes from the, Yon- the Yonkers Statesman in Yonkers, New York. This one also on the same day of the accident. Speed King dies after boat sinks. Major Seagrave fatally injured after setting world record. Companion killed. Craft being groomed for Detroit race plunges under lake. From the International News Service. Windermere, England, June 13th. Major Henry Seagrave, Britain's Speed King, died today from injuries sustained when his speedboat, Miss England II, capsized on Lake Windermere during a speed trial in which he broke the world's record for speedboats. A Rolls-Royce executive named Hallowell met instant death when the new speedboat being groomed for the international races at Detroit plunged beneath the water of Lake Windermere on its third sprint over a measured course. Major Seagrave was hurried from the cockpit and sustained injuries which later caused his death. Seagrave, who was knighted by King George after breaking the world's automobile speed record at Daytona Beach last year with a pace of 231 miles an hour, hovered between life and death for several hours in a hospital. Although unconscious for most of that time, he awoke at intervals and asked, cons- cons- asked questions concerning the fate of the other two men who were in the craft at the time it turned turtle. Both Major Seagrave's arms were broken, a rib was fractured, and he sustained internal injuries. M.W. Wilcox, Seagrave's mechanic, was the third member of Miss England's crew who was seriously injured. Like Seagrave, he was thrown clear of the speedboat when it capsized. Hallowell was pinned beneath the cockpit and went to his death when the craft plunged beneath the waves. Miss England was almost totally destroyed. An explosion destroyed a large portion of her hull soon after the dive when the craft settled in 240 feet of water. That audio clip I I played you of the, the audio of that... Um, news report, if you will, which, which would have been kind of a news reel from back in that time, the very somber British voice declaring the passing of Seagrave. What you heard was the boat at full song, that giant Rolls-Royce engine roaring across the water. And what you heard at the end was the boat sinking. There is footage of the boat after they have recovered the the two dead bodies, unfortunately, and the one guy that was barely hanging on to life uh, sinking kind of uh, bow up into the water. So... What happens next? Well, for the English, not much, at least um, initially. What happens next in America is that Garwood builds a boat that is going to become an absolute legend in the world of powerboat racing. And it's kind of the lead-up, the prelude to the legend. Garwood, who knows that Seagrave died, is not necessarily deterred from anything he's doing that Seagrave died. This is not uh, his problem, so to speak. We live in a, a different time, perhaps, than they lived back then. But what's so interesting is that these guys were never really dissuaded by the bad stuff that happened to anybody else. And so for for you know for Garwood, the only idea now is like, well, if the biggest threat for me going 100 miles an hour first is gone. And so what do I do now? Well, it doesn't take him very long. The 100-mile-an-hour bro- barrier is broken by Gar Wood on March 30, 1931, and it is a 2,200-horsepower version of his Miss America series. This is Miss America number 9. And so when we talk about the record, Gar Wood, multimillionaire speedboat 
driver sent his Miss America 9 skimming over placid waters here today at more than 100 miles an hour and laid claim to a new world speedboat record for both the statute and nautical miles. He claimed the record for a statute mile with a speed of 101.154 and the record for the nautical mile with a speed of 102.256. Old Zay Porter, American Automobile Association timer and representative of the American Powerboat Association, clocked Woods runs which were made on Indian Creek, Indian Creek River near the racer's winter home, which was a giant estate, by the way. The first two-way run of the day over the statute course was officially clocked for an average of speed of 100.6 miles an hour, but will not be offered by Wood in his claim for the world speedboat record. The 102.256 mile an hour mark set shortly after noon on the statute mile course will, if accepted, supersede the 96 point or other 98.78 mile an hour record set last year by the late Henry Seagrave on Lake Windermere in England just prior to his death. At the conclusion of the day's racing, he sat in his home here and announced he planned to build a boat 20 miles an hour faster than Miss America 9, whose two engines delivered a total of 2,200 horsepower. I will buy engines capable of 4,000 horsepower for the new boat, he said. I may have to go to England to buy them, but I will do it if necessary. Seagrave had engines of this power, which he sent his record last summer, and if American manufacturing does not support, supply them, I will go to foreign manufacturers for them. So, you know, it's it's pretty interesting. This 100-mile-an-hour mark was a big deal. The newspaper reporting again in 1931 was enormous, and it is, again, another kind of affront to the British sensibility that it is an American who has uh, taken this 100-mile-an-hour speed. And so because of that... Uh, they decide that, you know, the English are not going to sit around and just let this happen. They, too, are going to mount themselves a, uh, a major league charge. So we talk about March of 1931 having a record set. Well, we don't have to wait far to see that record broken. In fact, it is only a month later in 1931 that another guy steps up to the plate to break a record. And this guy is an Irishman named Kay Don or more accurately, K. Ernest Donsky. Now, for reasons that you can probably understand, he went by K. Don. It sounds cooler. He just did that. This is another maverick dude. He was born in 1891. He was a World War I pilot that saw some service on the Western Front, and he started racing at Brooklands, the famous racetrack in England, after World War I. Now, uh, Don was no stranger to setting records. He set records in cars at Brooklands, like the lap record, and he also set records in boats doing different things. In fact, he set a record of, of a kind of back and forth across the English Channel at one point when he was a young man. So this is somebody who certainly has some, um, certainly has some experience in terms of setting records. And in 1931, he was tapped to drive Miss, Miss England 2, which was resurrected from the bottom of Lake Windermere, rebuilt to be stronger, better, faster, and at this time in history, it was kind of an interesting pick because K. Don, after having several successes in the world of, of speed records and, and kind of gaining himself a little bit of a foothold and following in England, mounted a charge to set the land speed record of the world in a car called the Silver Bullet, which was a 4,000-horsepower, 8,000-pound car that fell 45 miles an hour short of setting the world speed record on Ormond Beach in Florida. And... It was an embarrassing and complete total failure to actually um, to actually experience what he did. Uh, he almost he shamed himself, you know, shamed the nation. It was not good. And 
a guy named Lord Wakefield, who was the one that, out of his own pocket, paid the money to have Miss England uh, brought to the surface, repaired, and brought back to um, brought back to, to racing form, is the one who called K. Don and suggested that he drives the boat. So, in in a in a astonishing twist here, it's not really that astonishing. It's just it's it speaks to the kind of craziness of of all this that we're going to be talking about through this whole show. These guys are trying to go better than 102 miles an hour, okay? They're not trying to go 250. They're not trying to go 300. They're trying to go better than 102. What is the solution to this? They decide to ship the boat to Argentina, okay? I don't know why, but they, they found some body of water in Argentina, a river that they wanted to use, and it did work. At incredible expense, it did work. And the proof is here in the pudding because, again, one month after Garwood goes 102. The story, which is published in the Altoona Tribune, Altoona, Pennsylvania, September 3rd, or rather April 3rd, 1931, K. Don breaks speedboat mark. British racer travels 103.49 miles an hour to better Garwood's recent speed record. And the story reads, Parna de las Palmas, Argentina, April 2nd. K. Don, British racer, split the muddy, swollen waters of the Piranha River today, setting up what would be claimed as the new world speedboat record at 103.49 statute miles an hour. The mark, if it is accepted as official, is better than Gar Wood's 102.56, given and gives Miss England the craft in which Sir Henry Seagrave was killed, the sur- speed supremacy which Gar Wood snatched from her. Don set his new mark on the third attempt over an isolated stretch of the river. Two previous trials resulted in failure when the aluminum exhaust boxes burned out. At dawn, the boat was towed to the head of the course, and Don, along with a couple of mechanics, put on light preservers and took her thundering downstream in a cloud of smoke for four practice runs. In one of the morning tests, Don said he had touched 100 miles an hour. In the afternoon, he roared upstream, spun around, and started back for the record. She seemed to shoot by like a shell out of a big gun, and the crowds who had waited all day long to see some action gasped at the tremendous speed. A following... And telling follow-up story here. It actually runs right in the same column. Dateline, New York, April 2nd. Gar Wood, who set a world's record of 102.28 miles an hour over a nautical mile course at Miami Beach last month, was told today that K. Don had apparently bettered that mark in Miss America 2 in Buenos Aires. I'll say this, Wood retorted when he was asked if he expected to take Miss America 9 out if the mark K. Don had run was proven to be official that my boat is right out there in the Indian Creek, and that I'm leaving for Miami Beach tomorrow. We didn't run our fastest mile by any means when we set the record, he said and chuckled. We'll see about it when we get down the official time on Don's run that he made down south. And this is it. So what we have now is the birth of what will be, for a couple-year period of time, the greatest rivalry in the world water speed record history. Much like we had Brie Love and Arfons in the 1960s on land, we have Garwood and K. Don in the 1930s trying to set these records on water. And to me, it's one of the most compelling, kind of interesting parts of this entire story. And while K. Don does run that 102, sets the record, it is not something that uh, is going to last him a whole long time. July of that year, he goes 110.23 miles an hour. Now, this is where it you know, really kind of starts to get serious, and that's a big move. Just a couple months later in September, the two boats are due to race each other in the Gold Cup race in Detroit. And so 
remember, these are racing boats. The boats are not just top speed boats. They're actually meant to compete against each other in open water races or, um, you know, on rivers or whatnot. So when you think about it, you have now this natural rivalry of these two guys that have traded the record back and forth. Obviously, some acrimony between them. Uh, they're not friends. They're each going for their national honor, their personal pride. And in September of that year, they meet up at this particular race. At this race, the first heat of a three race or three heat race was won by K Don. And after that first heat, Garwood had a problem with the boat and he requested 45 minutes to get the repairs made on the boat to do what he wanted to do. And they denied it. The uh, K Don said, Nope, sorry, uh, we're going to continue on. So, so you either get it fixed and show up or don't. And the way these races were started was pretty interesting. But basically, there was a timer and a time you had to run at the fin- at the starting line to kind of start things evenly. And Garwood, on purpose, launched his boat at full throttle way ahead of time. He was like 10 seconds too early making it to the starting line, meaning he was basically trying to jumpstart the thing. Well, K. Don, either in a fit of rage or just uh, not thinking about anything, decided to chase him. And Don came at him full speed ahead, came across his wake, and he sunk his boat. He hit the wake, the boat became unstable, and K. Don sunk the boat into the bottom of the water, uh, into the lake, which then had to be fit, or the river rather, which then had to be fished out again. And he was humiliated, and Gar Wood parked his boat because it was broken, and his brother George finished the race and won. So the Wood family won that one, and Gar Wood was able to get a uh, public measure of kind of humiliation revenge on K. Don for taking his record away. Then he would go on in February of the next year, in early 1932, on February 5th, he would go again on Indian Creek, right down by his, his winter estate, would run 111.7125 miles an hour, or 111.712 miles an hour, I should say, and reset the record, taking it back away from K. Don. So now they have traded this thing back and forth several times. That was July, that was rather February the 5th of 1932. We go all the way to July 18, 1932, and K. Don, now driving a craft known as Miss England 3, decides to really up the ante. Not only did he up the ante, we have the audio of what he did. Listen to this. I would like to introduce to you my uh, very able assistants. Uh, on my left here is my engineer who travels with me, Garner, and here is uh, Green and Fisher. And given reasonable conditions, we have every reason to believe that we shall be successful. Kadon's done it. He's broken the world speed record. Ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for the very great reception you've extended to me. 
I'm indeed very, very happy in, indeed to be able to uh, regain for Great Britain the world's water speed record. So what you just heard was Miss England 3 setting the speed record at 119.81 miles an hour, just shy of the magical 120-mile-an-hour mark. And for K. Don, this was as good as it ever got for him. This is the pinnacle of his racing career, and things went very badly for K. Don in so many ways after this in the short term. That was run on July 18th of 1932. And so, again, a quote from the World Water Speed Record book, an interesting passage here. That record was the end of K. Don as a powerboat racer, as Lord Wakefield pulled out his financial backing for personal reasons, and the record breaker returned to his business in the occasional motor race of the Brooklands. As an aside, K. Don also spent three months in prison in 1934 after being found guilty of causing the death of mechanic Francis Taylor as the two of them were preparing an MG Magnet on the Isle of Man. They had taken the car out at night without lights and had hit a hackney carriage on a public road. The MG lost a wheel and crashed. Six hours later, Taylor succumbed to his industry injuries in a hospital, and Don was arrested. He was found guilty by a jury, sentenced to four months imprisonment. Despite appealing the original verdict, and after just three months, he was released on December 10th on medical grounds. Don then went into the motorcycle business and built up a company known as Ambassador Motorcycles, which thrived until it was taken over by BMW in 1962. K. Don died in 1981, his water speed reputation far outliving his failure at the land speed record in the Silver Bullet. And so for K. Don, he peaked just shy of 120 miles an hour, in fact, at 119.81. But for Gar Wood, he had not yet peaked. In fact, for Gar Wood, he had not yet unveiled his monstrous, unstoppable masterpiece. This was a boat known as Miss America 10, and for a time in history, it was one of, if not the single most powerful machine on the planet. This was a boat that made more horsepower than a locomotive, and this was a boat designed to do one thing and one thing only, and that was to take the water speed record and put it in a a place so far away that no one could find it. Let's listen to Miss America 10 in all of its glory running in 1932. By the way, This thing had 6,400 horsepower by way of four engines that were joined together to make two massive Packard, basically 24-cylinder engines. At the time of this run, the boat was rated at 6,400 horsepower, and that, again, is in 1932. This is incredible. You'll hear the boat, you'll hear Miss America 10, and most importantly, you'll hear Garwood speak, which is a very rare thing to find on tape from this era. Miss America, the ten. Ten is the symbol of perfection. May it be for you the symbol of good luck. We uh, have here a very unique power plant, and uh, its total horsepower is 6,400. I believe that's the greatest power ever put in a motorboat for racing or any other purposes. And uh, we hope that uh, it'll drive this ship to a new world's record.
And so that is the sound of Miss America 10 being christened and Miss America 10 um, running across the water. Now, that would not necessarily a record run, but that was uh, one of the, the kind of a press appearance the boat made. K Don went 119.81 miles an hour on July 18th of 1932. It was just a couple months later, September 20th, 1932, that Garwood laid the hammer flat on this incredible boat that he had made and averaged a 124.86 miles an hour, decimating K Don's record, breaking the 120 mile an hour barrier for the first time in history, and cementing himself as, of his era, the greatest boat racer in the world. This was a 38-foot-long, 10-foot-wide boat that was basically, they took the engines, these four Packard engines that they linked together lengthwise, two and two, they built the boat around the engines. A guy named Nat Lease, L-I-S-E-E, did the 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 boats at this point. Chris Smith and um, and Wood had split up in the early, in the earlier before this boat was, was built, so Nat Lease did the work. The boat would burn 480 gallons of fuel per hour, 10 gallons of fuel per mile. They called him the Silver Fox, and for good reason. So Garwood, who had won every Helmsworth Cup from 1920 to 1933, and I should say the Wood family because his brother snagged one or two of those when his stuff broke, but the Wood family won every single one of them from 1920 to 1933. Wood effectively retires after this. Now, he did make some runs after it, and he did run the boat, but really after he had done the 120-mile-an-hour record, 124 and change, he decided to step away. He steps away as a six-time record holder, something he did over the course of 12 years, and he was a guy who was a national hero for so many reasons, but really the boat racing certainly cemented it. And when we talk about how big a deal it was when he went over 120, I want to talk about some of the kind of um, press that he got from doing this, including this one story that was published. In the Times-Dispatch of Richmond, Virginia, September 21, 1932, entitled Wood Breaks Don's Speedboat Mark with 125-mile-an-hour dash. Record returns to U.S. as Miss America 10 catapults over measured mile on St. Clair River at fastest pace ever set on water. Algonac, Michigan, September 20th. Garwood brought the world speedboat record back to the United States today by sending his Miss America 10 catapulting twice over a measured mile at the St. Clair River here at an average speed of 124.91 statute miles an hour. The former record of 119.75 miles an hour was made on Loch Lomond, Scotland, on July 18th last by Kay Don, a British speedboat pilot who unsuccessfully a fortnight ago tried to wrest the Harmsworth Trophy from Wood. Wood, after the record-breaking run, said Miss America's four 12-cylinder engines had not been wide open in today's effort and that he knew the big mahogany-hulled Thunderbolt could go faster. How much faster he can't say, he said. The motors were making 2,500 revolutions a minute. Their limit with safety is 2,700 revolutions a minute. Tells timer he's coming is the subtitle. There was a little ceremony about today's trials. Twice before the Saturday and again yesterday morning, Wood brought out Miss America 10 to attempt a new record only to be balked by the weather with the electrical timing equipment, and finally by a broken collar in one of the hydroplane's gearboxes. Today, he brought Miss America 10 out of his boat well, warmed up the engines with a few preliminary turns out of sight of the measured mile, and then notified the timers that he was coming. He came faster than any human ever before has traveled on water with a deafening roar of the exhaust of her 48 cylinders. Miss America 10 shot across the starting line, a streak of glistening brown, and she was gone. Less than half a minute, and the word came back. Miss America covered the statute mile in 28.86 seconds. 
a few seconds more, and the timer announced time for the nautical mile of 33.32 seconds converted into the statute miles. This was a new rate of 124.41 miles an hour. It's a new world's record, the timer announced. Wood, however, had another run to make. He swung wide after competing the first mile and thundered down again upon the starting line. Miss America 10 presented almost the same picture, a thin wisp of smoke issuing from her upright exhaust tubes and high spray reaching up from her stern. Then the downstream dash was clocked at 125.42 miles an hour, and a third upstream trial was made, but it was timed at 122.17, and Wood then took the boat, throttled down, back to its well, announcing he was satisfied with the average for the first two spurts of 124.91 statute miles an hour. He said afterward that he was uncertain whether he would try again. Any proof that this craft can go even faster than today? Wood pointed to the 126.92 miles an hour speed it registered in an unofficial warm-up spurt. So again, you can see kind of the national pride that is exhibited here when we talk about this record-breaking. And it, it went into newspapers across the globe, including the Pequa Daily Call from Pequa, Ohio, on September 20th, 1932. And this is another story. This one comes from the, from the Hearst News Network in Algonac, Michigan. Garwood drove Miss America 10 to a New World's record from motorboats on St. Clair River here today when he set the huge craft hurling twice over a measured nautical mile for an average time of 124.91 miles an hour. Over the nautical mile, Wood made 124.41 miles an hour for the first run, 125.42 for the second, and an average of 124.01. And it goes on again, tell the story about the boat looked like a blurring streak and people were yelling, here he comes, and they'd watch from the, they'd watch from the side. One of the interesting things is uh, the last paragraph of the story that says, Miss America 10 was lightened nearly 1,000 pounds from her racing weight for the run by removal of three of the four gasoline tanks. Four 12-cylinder Packard motors tuned up to 6,400 horsepower were beating a steady tattoo as the wood, as Wood and his mechanic Orlin Johnson headed into the stretch of quiet water with their timers checking the movements. There was no falter as Johnson slowly opened the throttle wide and let the boat extend itself to the utmost for the run. It was an example of sheer strength combined with a superior design. The boat weighed seven tons as it was run today, and it rode the waters with just a minute portion of the bottom touching the waves. And again, as mentioned, this is a stepped hull boat. V in the front, the stepped hull, so when it's at speed, it climbs up on that step, and very little of the boat is actually touching the water. This is the high water mark for Garwood as far as boat racing. His career as a businessman and his career as a as a kind of an American mechanical folk hero would go long into his years. He would live until the early 1970s. And there is a better than average chance I'm going to make a complete episode of this show about Gar Wood because as cool as the boating exploits are, so much of his life was even cooler than that. And for the interest of moving our discussion ahead, we go from one legend in this chase for speed on water to another. Because the man who would come up behind Garwood to take chase records was a living legend in his own right already in England, having set nine land speed records over the course of 1924 through 1935. His name was Malcolm Campbell, and he was not just going to attempt for the record, he was going to attempt to destroy it. So by the time Malcolm Campbell decides to try to set the water speed record, he is already a globally famous man who has been a dominating performer in the world of land speed record setting and racing. He won 
the uh, French Grand Prix a couple times, 1927 and 1928. He was a very well-known race car driver, and certainly his series of race cars that were known as Bluebird were among the most famous automobiles ever built in that period. These are massive land speed racing cars with huge engines in them. They weighed tons and tons, and they would take them first to the Pendine Sands in England, then they found Ormond Beach and Daytona Beach in Florida, and finally, of course, the Bonneville Salt Flats became the stomping ground for the uh, the ultra-wealthy British guys who were chasing land speed records. And for Malcolm Campbell, his biggest triumph came on the Bonneville Salt Flats. He had set the land speed record multiple times, as mentioned, but really his most prolific record was at 301 miles an hour. That was set in 1935. He became the first guy to ever achieve 300 miles an hour on land, and... Um, at that point, he hung up his spurs as far as trying to set land speed records and decided to go into the water for reasons, I guess, known only to him. Now, it took him a couple years as he set that record in 1935. It would be until 1937 that Campbell got out on the water. And at this point, the Garwood record still stands. The record he had set five years previous was still standing, which gives you an idea of how tough it was. Multiple people had tried to beat it. Nobody had been able to get around the record yet. So Campbell decides he's going to have a boat built specifically for him, which he did. It was called Bluebird K3. The K designation came from the Lloyds of London insurance class that this would go in. The three stood for it being the third kind of unlimited boat built uh, to fit this class of insurance of Lloyds of London, which uh, it should be mentioned that Malcolm Campbell was involved in Lloyds of London. It's where a lot of his money came from. Uh, he was also involved with a company called British Movie Tone. And his involvement with British Movie Tone was, was very fortuitous for him because he was able to publicize everything he was doing by sending video crews and film crews out to follow him, which also means we have a lot of great media around Malcolm Campbell that we're going to be able to share in this show. So the boat he had built, very interesting. He took a completely different approach than everybody else had to that point. Yes, it had a stepped hull, so it did have that same kind of hull design we've been talking about. But this boat was built basically only large enough to hold the big giant Rolls-Royce V12 engine. Now, this engine was the same one that he used in the Bluebird that went 301 miles an hour at Bonneville. So he was able to take that Rolls-Royce engine, go to these boat builders, and the, the boat builders that he commissioned were a guy named Fred Cooper, and that was the designer. And so the boat was only 24 feet long. Nine and a half feet wide, weighed about 5,000 pounds, uh, 1,800 of those pounds were the engine. And the whole thing was crafted out of plywood, and it was, um, you know, obviously covered in veneer and everything else, but the, the main construction was wood. And so the theoretical math when this craft was built said that it could go about 130 miles an hour. Existing record, of course, was 124, so 130 would be, uh, would be just fine for them. It was 1937. They went to Lake Maggiore, which is a lake on the border of Italy and Switzerland. And, you know, it was a big deal. He was he was celebrated for being a celebrity. Thousands of people came to watch the uh, to watch the boat perform. And it really did the job right out of the gate. Um, September 1st, 1937. Lo, lo and behold, we have the very first time in history with Malcolm Campbell holding the water speed record. What is doubly interesting is that he became, in that moment, the second man in history to hold the water and land speed records at the same time. 
We know that because we talked earlier about Seagrave and how Seagrave had managed to pull that off. Although, unfortunately for him, he died on the same day that he set the record, but he did have both at the same time. Now Campbell has held up that British con- that British kind of tradition. And the boat went 126.33 miles an hour uh, on the first day, averaging, of course, uh, one, one, one mile or one kilometer one way, then the one kilometer back. He gets the 126-mile-an-hour record, bumping, bumping Gar's record only by two miles an hour, which, again, he got the record, but still not as impressive as he would have wanted. He really wanted to go out there and blow this thing out of the water. Literally the next day, he gets back in the boat, goes 129 and a half miles an hour, thereby bumping his own record. Garwood actually congratulated Donald Campbell after this happened, and he offered to buy the engine out of the boat for 15,000 British pounds, which was a huge sum of money. And Campbell uh, did not sell the engine because he certainly had more uh, plans for this particular craft. It should be mentioned also that uh, in October of that year, he lost that land speed title. So Malcolm Campbell lost the land speed title as uh, George Ison took his Thunderbolt, went 312 miles an hour on the Bonneville Salt Flats, leaving Campbell with only the water title and basically a winter to think about what his plan would be for the next year. Before we go on to 1938, though, let's take a listen to hear what it sounded like when the Bluebird K3 rocketed across Lake Maggiore and managed to set the world's water speed record in 1937 and certainly to keep Malcolm Campbell in the headlines. The new principle in speedboat design represented by the Bluebird is to be given a thorough tryout on Lake Maggiore in Switzerland. Garwood's Miss America, present holder of the water speed record, is powered by four engines developing 7,800 horsepower. Bluebird's smaller capacity is described by Sir Malcolm. We've only got one engine of 2,000 horse, in fact the same motor that we used in the Bluebird when we achieved a speed of 300 miles an hour on the salt beds in September 1935. We are only 21 feet on the water line, and our total weight is less than 4,500 weight. So it is a very light boat, and we do need absolutely perfect conditions before going out for our test run. What the results will be, it's impossible to say. It'll rest on the lap of the gods. What a wonderful boat the Bluebird must be, with her light hull and single engine, to have topped the record of Garwood's four-engine Miss America three times her size. Listen to her song as she streaks over Lake Maggiore. she comes again on the return journey, which raises her figure to 129.5 miles per hour. This is her second record, and Sir Malcolm walks ashore delighted at his further achievement. It is an occasion for bouquets and warm salutations, and after jubilation has subsided, he takes his seat at the wheel again and talks to his own newsreel. I would like to say this to my friends of British Movie Tone News. I'm delighted that we've been successful in raising the water speed record. We've had a most interesting time out here, and we've learned a tremendous lot. This boat has only been built from an experimental point of view, but I feel sure that we can find a lot more speed with some slight alterations. They've worked day and night ceaselessly. And so Campbell is once again kind of the uh, speed king of the world, at least on the water here. And as I mentioned, uh, it would not be very long until he lost the land speed record to George Ison. But again, he's in the he's in the headlines. This is the place where this guy kind of lived. He, you know, was very kind of uh, very proper. Uh, British guy had a lot of national pride so the idea that they were able to come back and get the record and you know you can kind of hear it in the in the movie tone uh, narration talking about the long odds you know they were they had a single engine to 
to the four engines of Gar Wood and what a boat this thing must be and, you know, kind of a hint of the uh, pride in the British engineering. So in 1938, uh, he's not done yet. Malcolm Campbell comes back out again, and he goes to a lake in Switzerland and goes 130.91 miles an hour. That was really the only thing that uh, he did of note, and that did bump his own record. So he takes his own record from 129.56 to 130.93. Interestingly, there was not a lot of headlines made when he did that for reasons uh, I'm not quite sure of. Uh, Many times when these guys would set a record, there was a lot of interest and a lot of build and buzz and everything else, but that 130-mile-an-hour record really wasn't wasn't covered in much of a, a ballyhooed way. Now we go to 1939, and after the success of Bluebird K3, Malcolm Campbell has commissioned somebody new, a man named Peter Duquesne, to build him a new craft, which will be dubbed the Bluebird K4. The Bluebird K4 was a much different design, and it would begin a series of boats that started now in the late 30s and really kind of took us all the way to the modern style of hull that is used in the very fast uh, boats that are chasing these speed records and is known as a three-pointer or a three-point hydroplane. And very simple, what a three-point hydroplane is, as the boat's sitting still, it's floating around like a normal craft, the whole kind of bottom of it's in the water. The faster you go, the boat basically gets up on three points. Think of a almost like a lobster with its claws out. Those would be the front two, and then there is a, a planing uh, piece in the back. So as it's going across the water, it gets up on those two areas in the front and one area in the back so it's only touching the water in three places and it's minimizing the drag because of the fact that it's uh that it's you know so far out of the water to this point in history with the speeds being what they are aerodynamics have come into play but they've not come into play in a way that will be almost duplicitous in 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 the future but for 1939 and for the speeds we're talking about here the weight of the craft and the way that they're kind of running them across the water this three-point hydroplane design is pretty much perfect. It is stable, it is fast, it is wide, and for the most part, it is very controllable for a guy like Donald Campbell. So as this boat is released, and this boat is created, I should say, he is now attempting to make a big leap on that record that he set in 1938. We know what happened in 1939 in the world, right, kids? We know what happened the beginning of World War II. Uh, the, you know, Europe kind of comes apart at the seams. Uh, there's invasions, there's, there's fighting. But before any of that happened, Malcolm Campbell went out one more time in the Bluebird K3 and went 141.74 miles an hour. And he did this, uh, and this time it was a fair amount of coverage. This was no, this was not an ignored thing, and we can understand why at this point. Um, to me, I think we're talking about a, a world that was on the brink of war. We're talking about countries that are that are jostling for position, that are puffing their chest out, that are trying to prove to um, their adversaries in a in a either subtle or perhaps not subtle way who is the technologically superior society. And so, when you get this water speed record up over 140 miles an hour, um, that is something that the world is going to hear about. And so when he set this record, it was carried in newspapers and it was carried in, in uh, you know, news sources around the world, including the Sydney Morning Herald of Sydney, New South Wales, Australia, the August 21st, 1939 edition. Reads as follows. New speed record, Bluebird, 141.74 miles an hour. Sir Malcolm Campbell achieved a new world record in his motorboat, Bluebird 2, on Lake Coniston, in Lan- Lancashire yesterday when he recorded an average speed of 141.74 miles an hour. His first flying mile was at 142.85, and then the return run, which which he was nearly choked with exhaust fumes, 
at 140.62. He said that if he had removed the paper bag containing 55,000 ping pong balls weighing in at 160 pounds, which were carried to ensure extra buoyancy in the event of a mishap, he could have probably reached 150 miles an hour. Sir Malcolm Campbell will not attempt a further record this year. He celebrated his new record by entertaining the villagers at a dance last night. Referring later to the record, Sir Malcolm Campbell said that the regulations allowed an interval of 20 minutes that he could have used to delay in order to recover from the fumes from the first run. He wished, however, to avoid the recoil from the wash, which would shortly be returning from the opposite banks of the lake. He could not have driven at high speed through the ripples, he said, and his boat would have bucked like a wild coat. Colt. Therefore, he decided to return the run immediately, and as he was nearing the finish line, he saw the wash closing in, but he had a smooth passage. Nevertheless, he added it required all of his strength to keep it on course. An additional addendum to the story here from the Australian Associated Press. Sir Malcolm Campbell revealed that when he was half-choked by exhaust fumes on the return run, he had to stand up for several moments with his head out of the cockpit struggling for air. This reduced the speed by several miles an hour, and he finished scarlet in the face and gasping for breath. Hundreds of holidaymakers lined Lake Constantine at dawn. The weather conditions were perfect. Sir Malcolm Campbell said that the performance was a credit to the designer and to British engineering. There's a devil of a lot more speed in her yet, he declared. We're only at the fringe of her capacity, and I will try more modifications with the hull. The designer, Commander Peter Duquesne, said that the lessons from the Bluebirds run should be of the greatest value in the future design of flying boat hulls. The Bluebirds engines are 12 years old. Important discoveries is the next sub-headline. Sir Malcolm Campbell today revealed that the record resulted in the most important discoveries vitally affecting the design of high-speed naval craft. There is no need to improve on the new speed, said Sir Malcolm Campbell. I have dropped on discoveries that are far more important than merely installing a new engine and slightly raising the record. I cannot reveal the discoveries. Obviously, I'm not going to hand them on a plate to Italy and Germany. Captain Duquesne said that there had been startling developments which he did not doubt would be of national importance in naval construction. After early attempts in August 1938 on Lake Geneva, Sir Malcolm Campbell moved the following month to the small Lake Hallowell, where he has achieved the average speed of 130.91, his previous record, which was supplanted by the 141-mile-an-hour speed. So pretty interesting stuff here, and I'm going to mention the fact that there was great media coverage of this 1939 record to kind of rub it in the face of everybody else. Let's give it a listen. Another triumph for Britain in the international world of sport. Sir Malcolm Campbell raises his own water speed record by the amazing increase of 11 miles an hour. And these pictures from Coniston Water in the Lake District show just how he did it. Bluebird II's first test was so satisfactory that within a few hours of floating her, Sir Malcolm decides to try for the record. He rolls away towards the measured mile, slowly opening her out. And here he comes, faster than any man has ever skimmed the water before. And back again, just about as fast. Sir Malcolm's previous record was 131 miles an hour. And so with the onset of World War II, very little record-breaking was to happen other than record-breaking badness of the uh, largest you know, global conflict in human history. And so it wouldn't be until 1947 that we start talking about water speed records again, or at least serious attempts at them. When 1947 rolled around, war gets over. Campbell is uh, once again gets the itch to try to set some records and, and get himself back in the headlines. He decided to make a big change to the Bluebird K4, and 
we talk about this change, it, it begins, um, it begins the, this inevitable process, if you will. We saw it with land speed racing cars, and we saw it in land speed racing boats, or rather water speed record boats, which was their method of propulsion. There is one very notable exception to this rule, and I'm going to talk about that one next, but let's put a period on Donald Campbell's, rather Malcolm Campbell's, water record setting and his last and kind of final attempt with a Bluebird K4 to quote the World Water Speed Record book by Roy Calley. Once the war ended, Campbell, whose financial situation was not quite what he had hoped, decided he'd have another crack at his own record. This was despite the fact no one seemed to be showing any real interest in challenging him, and the fact that he'd been advised time and time again it really wouldn't be the money spinner or publicity grabber that his previous records has been. He was of no mind to listen and immediately contacted Rolls-Royce to find suitable engines to power the now mothballed K4. They were in no position to help as the company was still recovering from the conflict, so he took the brave decision to radically overhaul Bluebird, and fitted the Hablin Goblin turbojet engine that created 5,000 pounds of thrust, and it recently propelled a vampire plane to speeds of 600 miles an hour. It was a gamble, especially as the boat had to be redesigned to accommodate a thrust engine instead of the usual propellers, but Campbell was desperate to increase his speed. Like all things, when people get desperate, they try to do something really out of the box. Uh, this did not go well. In fact, on paper... It seemed like it should have, a massive increase in power using thrust instead of a piston engine, and, and they had just kind of come to the end of what they could do with that Rolls-Royce V12. And so with glaucoma kind of taking his eyesight from him and, and this kind of new untested boat that really on paper should have been able to go a couple hundred miles an hour, um, it, it just did not work at all. The boat never set a record. Uh, it was wildly unstable, and... It had taken what was really, a, if you look at the K3, and again, I encourage you to go to Google Images to look up what the Bluebird K3 looked like, and then you look at what they had to do to it to turn it into the K4 with the the turbine engine, um, it, it just is, it, it kind of turns the thing into, it looks like a tick. It looks like a, a swelled up tick on the water, um, and the, the K3 is a pretty beautiful machine. So uh, the unfortunate part is that um, it really it really was the end for Donald Campbell in terms of everything. Um he never set a record again. He actually died in his sleep in 1948, uh, had a, a series of strokes. And, you know, it's something to, I guess, think about here that these guys were not the the easiest living guys either. When we talk about, you know, people who do this for a living, uh, Campbell, by all accounts, was a very heavy drinker and chain smoker and um, really did not uh, did not live the cleanest of lifestyles. And he was 63 years old when he died. And he died a national hero. And as we'll come to find out going forward, the fact that he passed away in his sleep was a, a pretty great blessing. It's not the way that a lot of stories end from this part of our discussion on this Waterland speed record uh, goes forward. You're going to find out that, that sleep is a, uh, a much preferred method than the way some of these guys checked out. 1950 is the next spot we're going to travel to. And 1950 is where my personal favorite story of this lineage comes from because it really comes out of nowhere. And we get to 1950, Donald Campbell, who is Malcolm Campbell's son, who would spend effectively his entire life chasing the mythology of his dad, um, is now excited about trying to break the, break the record. He's going to get the K-4 out of mothballs. He, his dad has passed away. He's going to you know, keep that family heritage alive. Uh, he had been hearing that there were people trying to come for his dad's record. And to this point in his life, Campbell, uh, he was in his late 20s. He had never really raced anything. He had never really driven a boat of any consequence. 
but he would attack it with the same verve and the same bravery that his dad did. And he took that K-4 out in the water and had just as much success as his father. As brave as Donald Campbell was, uh, it would be impossible to kind of overcome the physics of, of what was trying to get done there. It was just totally wrong. But in Seattle, Washington, there was something that was not wrong at all. And the name of the boat was Slow Motion, owned by a guy named Stan Sa- Stanley Sayers. Sayers is a guy who was in the car business, had some business interests around Seattle, and he loved powerboat racing. He had been love- in love with powerboat racing for many, many years, and Slow Motion was uh, a series of boats that he had commissioned over the course of his life, and they were racing hydroplanes. And the racing hydroplanes of the 1950s are some of the most beautiful and stunning race boats you're ever going to see. They're very long. They're front engine, and you have this big Allison aircraft engine in the front. You have these wide kind of three-point style hydroplane hulls. They're made out of mahogany and teak. They're, they're just absolutely crafted works of art that were very, very fast. How fast? Well, if, as Stanley Sayers would find out in 1950, uh, they could be the fastest things in the world. The boat was built in in 1948, and it was 28 feet long, weighed 4,750 pounds, had an Allison V12, and the the boat was designed to what we now call prop ride, which means at full pull, full speed, effectively the only thing in the water is the propeller that is forcing the boat along. And as we'll come to know, slow motion is the final propeller-driven water speed record vehicle that has existed. Now, they broke off a separate category, just like in land speed racing for wheel-driven and thrust-driven vehicles, but we're talking about the ultimate record here. And so it is the last of the prop-driven boats that will hold the water speed record. And in 1950, up there in Seattle, Washington, Stanley Sayers levels the hammer and starts hammering on it. He designed this boat with a guy named Ted Jones, who is a Boeing engineer, and a man named Anchor Johnson actually built the craft. But between Jones's understanding of aerodynamics and how to and hydrodynamics really to, to manipulate those two things and make the boat as slippery as possible, and Johnson's fine construction, uh, this 2,000 horsepower machine that was launched in August of 1949 was ready to rock and roll right out of the gate. These are race boats, remember. This was not simply built as a speedboat in terms of just setting a record. It would go out and race in the hydroplane races of the of the era, which were, you know, held on big courses. And Seattle, Washington is one of the great kind of hydroplane racing cities in the world. They have their annual sea fair. It is a, a huge part of the culture of boat racing up there. But on seven at seven ten in the morning, June 26, 1950, slow motion, stamps stand sayers behind the tiller, goes. 160.323 miles an hour, bumping the record by an incredible 19 miles an hour. This was the biggest jump in the water speed record since it was kind of officially ratified in 1928. This was a boat that was effectively built in secret. Nobody knew, and the only way Donald, or rather, yeah, the only way Donald Campbell found out was by getting a telegram, and you know this guy must have been sick to his stomach. Here is what slow motion sounded like at 160 miles an hour. She's called Slow Motion 4, and at Seattle, she's about to be piloted by 53-year-old Stanley Sayers in an attempt on the world speed record. That record was set up by Sir Malcolm Campbell when he travelled at nearly 142 miles an hour in his Bluebird II at Coniston in 1939. Now 
Now Sayers and his mechanic make their bid with a two-way run over the measured mile. First run, nearly 164 miles an hour. Then slow motion, if we really must call it that, makes the return trip at over 157. Subject to confirmation, Sayers had done it, with an average speed of just over 160. Slow motion indeed. So in a sign of the times changing in terms of how people viewed this record or what kind of publicity it would get, the m mention of Stanley Sayers setting the 100, 100 now and, uh, you know, 70, or rather 160-mile-an-hour record um, really only garnered some small kind of snippets in the newspapers. This one from the Daily Reporter out of Greenfield, Indiana, on June 26, 1950. Stanley S. Sayers today rocketed to his speedboat, Slow Motion 4, to a New World's hydroplane record when he was clocked at 160.3235 miles an hour. The Seattle automobile dealer's speed mark was set in a two-way dash over a measured mile on the placid waters of Lake Washington. He bested officially the record set of 141.74 miles an hour set on Lake Coniston by Sir Malcolm Campbell and his Bluebird II. So Sayers would continue to race this boat with great success. He won both the Harmsworth Trophy and the Gold Cup. Uh, so slow motion was a, just a real destroyer, not only in the sense of its, its performance as a top speedboat, but also as one that was a racer as well. And he wasn't done yet. And so we have two stories that, we're going, that are going to intersect here, and, and I'd like to put a conclusion on the Stanley Sayers story before we move into the story of John Cobb. Because in 1952, Sayers upgraded the engines to the boat. They made a couple of small alterations. And Sayers then showed up, went back to Lake Washington with supercharger on his Allison engine, made about 500 more horsepower, and went a crazy 178.497 miles an hour across Lake Washington, taking his own record again and bumping it some 18 miles an hour. Had he not absolutely, had he not bounced Campbell so hard the first time it would have been this leap that would have put him way over the top in terms of the the gaps that he had placed on the rest of the world and it wasn't because nobody else was trying over the course of the last two years Donald Campbell had been out in the K4 boat desperately trying to get the record he had he had rumored to have run 170 at one point but he was never able to do it twice and he was never able to do it consistently and every time that boat went even remotely fast it would basically eat itself up the last time they tried it the boat blew up and that was pretty much the end of it Campbell was uninjured in that and it would move his hand to create one of the most iconic kind of race boats of all time but at this point Stanley Sayers bumps his own record now to nearly 180 miles an hour, which is incredible stuff, and it was covered as such in the media. Let's listen to Stanley Sayers' second triumph in this newsreel from 1952. What a contrary-wise name for such a roaring speedster. It ought to be named Comet or Rocket or goodness knows what, but slow motion. This short sprint of less than 20 seconds running time is being run at the fabulous rate of over 185 miles per hour over three miles per minute. But it's not just one dash. It takes two to make a record. An average of the dashes in both directions must be taken to determine her speed. The electric eye timing devices clock her as she breaks out of a measured mile. Then back she comes for her northward run. The news headlines tell the story. 
a new record of better than 178 miles per hour, the fastest ever set by man on water. And to me, again, the absolute coolest part of this with Stanley Sayers is the fact that, you know, this is a guy who who kind of came out of nowhere. He was not English nobility. He was certainly a guy who was successful in business, obviously, uh, you know, selling cars and, and making money to be able to fund this. But when we look at who's done this to this point, it's been these noblemen and these crazy rich guys and, and everybody's kind of out of the box. And this is a very kind of American story this thing is a hot rod it's got an Allison motor in it like American motor in, in a lot of ways it is the ultimate extension of what Gar Wood was doing you know he had way less power than Gar Wood but he had such a better hull beautiful design you know you're sitting behind this giant Allison engine you have this this really racy looking boat and just hammering and getting it done Sears was not a publicity hound you know he was not a guy who um, wanted the glory so to speak and he had some interesting quotes one of the um one of the quotes that was attributed to him as he was getting ready to run that 180, 178 mile an hour record run, which he did peak at 185 at one point, Sears was quoted as saying, there are penalties to being the number one target. What started out as a hobby is beginning to turn me into a slave. And we know that feeling, right? You get you get hooked on this idea. You get hooked on, on wanting to go faster, and he did. And we talk about some of the media coverage. I played you the newsreel. And here's a report from the Wilmington Daily Press Journal of Wilmington, California, from August 6, 1952. Water Speed speed King is the champ of champs. Stanley Sayers, a soft-spoken businessman with a hobby of speedboating, has parlayed his avocation into a sports kingdom. Sayers, who heads an automobile company and manufactures cold-weather clothing, stands alone in the sport of hydroplane racing. He is to hydroplane racing what Ben Jones is to horse racing and Wilbur Shaw is to automobile racing, a champion of champions. Stan is the owner and most of the time driver of the fastest speedboats the world has ever known, Slow Motion 4 and Slow Motion 5. Slow Motion 4 with Sayers at the wheel set a new world's record several weeks ago. This time it was an unbelievable 178 mile an hour run and I didn't go all the way through on the throttle, said Stan. Slow Motion 5 still hasn't been opened up all the way. Those are two reasons that make Sayers Boats the crafts to beat this year at the 45th running of the Gold Cup, the Kentucky Derby of Speedboating. Slow Motion 4 won the Cup in 1950, and 5 took the crown last year. One or the other is considered a sure bet for this year's event. Sayers is not a wealthy man, and he almost had to let his fame go to wane. In fact, it took racing enthusiasts in this city to keep him a hobbyist. I had gone into the red about $85,000, Sayers said, and I was about to dry dock the slow-mos for less expensive boats. But Seattle wouldn't let the champion quit. The little guys, most of whom didn't, don't own a rowboat, weren't letting the winner get away. They offered to become hobbyists with Sayers. They made donations and in return hold cards saying that they are members of the Slow Motion Club, an honor that they go for. Sayers' financial demise in the operation of this hobby probably resulted from his own undoings. As a hobbyist, he didn't capitalize on his handicraft. Instead of putting a price tag on the blueprints of his sleek racers, he gave them away. Toy replicas of the famous slow-mos were made and no royalties to Sayers were paid, but that's not the way you wanted it, and he never asked for a handout. Interesting guy, interesting story, kind of flies in the face of everything we've seen and learned so far with who has been doing this. Now, the next man to step up to the plate to compete with Sayers is trying to do it simultaneously. And the reason I wanted to kind of put a, a punctuation mark on Sayers' accomplishments is because the, the John Cobb story on the water 
is one that bears telling. It bears telling on a couple levels. First off, John Cobb was a very famous man in the world at this time in history. He had set the world speed or land speed record, I should say, in 1938-1939, and most importantly in 1947. After World War II, he took his machine, the Railton Mobile Special, which had two Napier, giant Napier airplane engines in it, was four-wheel drive, and he set the speed record on land at 394.19 miles an hour with a peak speed of 403 miles per hour. That speed of 394 set in 1947 held until 1963. And it was so far ahead of everybody at that point that he decided he wanted to try to nab the water record. Because look, John Cobb looked at people like Henry Seagrave, like Malcolm Campbell, as heroes. What did both of those guys do? Both of them held the water and land records at the same time. He wanted to do the same thing. Cobb was an interesting guy. He was a very wealthy, believe it or not, fur broker in London. His family had involved, been involved in the fur business for a very long time, so he had a, an interest or a share, if you will, in many different fur companies. He oversaw their operation, and he made a lot of money. He was born in the late 1800s, was a racer in Brooklyn's at, in England, the racetrack there in the, in the 1920s. Again, the story is very similar to the other people we've talked about here. Rich family upbringing, gets obsessed with cars and speed, has race cars built, wins races, and then decides to really go after the big kind of enchilada. Now, his boat was called the Crusader. And again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the same thing I've done a couple times here. Recommend you go to Google Images and look up John Cobb Crusader because this is the weirdest looking craft that has entered this discussion yet. This is a boat that has um, a very large center section, a kind of canoe-shaped, barrel, barrel canoe-shaped. It's an open cockpit, and it has some stanchions, and then it has sponsons on, on the right. So you have these kind of floats on the, either side that are effectively propping the center up out of the water. It is a hydroplane design, and it is uh, one of the weirder hydroplane designs that we're going to see over the course of this entire discussion. The Crusader was powered by a turbine engine. So again, we've gone, we've gone back to turbines. Slow motion was a piston boat with a propeller. This is going to be a thrust boat. And the idea, of course, is that you're going to get this thing up to speed, and it's going to plane itself across the water on those very small sponsons, reducing the drag and being able to speed along. 31 feet long, a three-point style hull because of the fact that at rest, you have the nose of the, the center section of the boat touching the water, and it, when it's at speed, that is not the case. It used a jet engine from a Comet jetliner and decided to run at Loch Ness. John Cobb had never driven a boat of any type, of any type, not a speedboat, not a race boat, not a pleasure boat, before getting into this thing. And George Easton, who was a man that uh, Cobb had battled back and forth for the land speed record, was actually his, his team manager. They, they were land speed racing nemesis of each other, but on the water they understood each other's brilliance, and Cobb was a smart man to have Eisen as part of the job. The idea of recapturing this record, which was bumped to 178 miles an hour before Cobb even got his boat into the water, he built this thing to chase the initial 160-mile-an-hour record. It was bumped to nearly 180 miles an hour by Sayers in America in 1952, and that is what Cobb is now going to get in the water and chase after. This being said, they've designed this boat to go 200-plus. The idea was not just to s simply sneak by Sayers. The idea was to be the first guy to go 200 and set the record at over 200 miles an hour. Because of the national pride thing we've talked about, 
This made big waves. This made big splash. Before the thing even hit the water, the Queen Mother came to visit. Listen to this. The Crusader is going up to Loch Ness this afternoon, and as soon as we are ready, we shall put her in the water and commence making our trials. The present uh, world's water speed record is held by Mr. Sayre of America with a speed of over 178 miles an hour. And this boat has been designed with a view to breaking his record. Resting on her trailer, Crusader assuredly looks the part, a revolutionary craft which John Cobb thinks has solved the problem of stability at high speed. As for that speed, she's got a jet engine developing 3,000 horsepower. Designed by Reed Railton and driven by John Cobb, Crusader obviously has the highest credentials. Now, the British commentator there was correct. This boat did have the highest credentials. It had the most experienced team. It had the best engineers that, that the world really had to offer in terms of building a craft like this. And the boat hit the water very quickly after uh, you heard John Cobb speaking that they would go up and start the trials immediately, which they did. So we move now to September of 1952, and the, the boat is placed in the uh, Loch Ness famous body of water they chose Loch Ness because of the fact that it's 23 miles long plenty of room to do this it is typically very calm and it is very deep up to a thousand feet in certain points so the very first shakedown run that Cobb would make in the boat he got going about 120 miles an hour and came in and told the reporters that it felt like driving a London omnibus with no tires on it he was not quite expecting how rough it was out there on what really was a very placid lake the lake itself was uh, smooth as glass but when you get a boat like this up to speed, even 120 miles an hour, it's bouncing around, it's, it's knocking around, and it's uh, not a comfortable place to be. Not that it was very comfortable to go 394 miles an hour at Bonneville, but this is a very, very different experience. So that was September 12th. They had some weather delays, and leading up to September 23rd, he made two runs averaging 173 miles an hour. Now again, he's within just, just spitting distance now of the record. He's trying to go 180, basically, to break the record that Sayers has set only a couple of months before in July. It would be a very uh, very quick turn, a very quick grab, if you will, to get this record just a couple of months after uh, Sayers had set it. The weather is bad again for the next couple of days. The money starts to run out, and the budget that Cobb had was very big, but it's, it's bleeding money by the day just sitting there as the weather is bad. September 29th at high noon. They go back on the water, and at this point, Cobb is 100% committed to going full throttle and trying to break the record. Not only trying to break the record, but certainly trying to become the first person to ever run 200 miles an hour on the water. This machine, as mentioned, it is a 5,000 uh, pound of thrust turbine called the de Havilland Ghost, and it was loaned to him by the British government. That's how deep this kind of effort went. Tripoint hull. Uh, plywood construction it has some aluminum used in the in the sponsons if you will the floats the the three-point hull and so as far as everything can be it is in place John Cobb goes out on the water on this fateful day goes to full throttle is streaking across the lake and then disaster strikes John Cobb died on the waters of Loch Ness, fighting as always to win new glories for Britain. Only two days before, the Queen Mother went to meet the man we call the fastest man on earth, who is now trying to become the fastest man on water for Britain. In his new jet boat, the Crusader, 
Cobb had already touched a high speed during trials, and there seemed no reason why yet another world speed record should not be his. Summing up all our thoughts, the Queen Mother herself wished John Cobb good luck in his new challenge. For six weeks, the Crusader had been at Loch Ness. At dawn each day, John Cobb waited for the weather to clear, and always his wife waited with him. Then, when the loch was calm and the wind slight, Cobb would climb aboard the Crusader, and a few minutes later, the shrill whine of his jet engines told that another attempt would be made on the world's water speed record. Out into the dark center of the loch, Cobb took the Crusader on those cold mornings. The official timekeepers took their places as the silver boat made its way to the start of the measured mile, and those on the banks held their breath and echoed the words of the Queen Mother. Good luck, John Cobb. Time and again, Cobb made the run, striving as he had done throughout his life for new honors in the world of speed. Then one day, we read that he had touched 185 miles an hour, and we were certain he would do it. Afternoon on the day that was to be his last, Cobb took the Crusader along the measured mile again, faster and faster until he was traveling at 240 miles an hour. And then... on the waters of Loch Ness, John Cobb was found. The glories that he had won during his lifetime were not for himself, but for his country. For John Cobb was, above all, a great Englishman. Cobb now becomes the second man to die in the quest for this water speed record. The first, of course, most notably being Seagrave. So we now, you know, have international headlines of of Cobb's death. It was um, it was a big story because people knew him as this uh, almost indestructible guy, fearless, set the land speed record, and we now pick up a story from the newspaper of the Salt Lake Tribune on September 30th, 1952. This from the Chicago Tribune press service entitled "200 Mile an Hour Run Ends Career of Britisher." Inverness, Scotland. Scots gathered here on Monday night to pay tribute to John Cobb, the first man to exceed 400 miles an hour on land, who was killed Monday in an instant after he became the first man to exceed 200 miles an hour on water. Cobb's jet-driven speedboat, the Crusader, broke up after a run over a measured mile on Loch Ness that regained for Britain, from America, the water speed record. Cobb's average speed over the mile was put through at 206.89 miles an hour, although expert witnesses estimate that the on part of the run, the boat had exceeded 240 miles an hour. Cobb is the second Briton to die, gaining water speed records. Sir Henry Seagrave was killed in, on June 13, 1930, when his boat, Miss England II, raced across a measured mile on Lake Windermere to an average speed of 98 miles an hour, and then, while traveling at more than 100 miles an hour, hit a submerged log and flipped onto its back. Subtitle Spray of Steam a flotilla of salvage boats Monday night encircled the area over an oil slick on Lake Loch Ness, attempting to collect bits of the wreckage that might indicate how John Cobb died. Some witnesses say the boat suddenly exploded. Others say that it began to slow down, bob three or four times, and then its nose dived into the water. The boat broke up, and a spray of steam rose as the white-hot jet engine sank into the cold British lock. 
Cobb was thrown clear of the wreckage, breaking his neck. A life belt kept his body floating, and within two minutes, a speedboat reached him. Cobb was drawn into that boat. Cobb was 52. His bride of two years, Vicky, was watching from the shore, and as the boat suddenly vanished, she turned, hid her face in her hands, and began to cry. Less than a month ago, another British wife, Miss John Derry, saw her husband die when the jet plane he was in, which had just exceeded the speed of sound, broke up over the heads of 130,000 spectators at an air show. Cobb had chosen Loch Ness because it's the, not only because of it being the home of the legendary monster, but because it afforded a longer run than Lake Windermere, the usual site of water speed runs in Britain. He brought his bro- boat there five weeks ago from the Vosper bo- Boatyards near Southampton. The Crusader is 31 feet long, designed by Reed Railton, the designer of Cobb's speedy cars, and Commander Peter Duquesne. It was built of plywood and aluminum and powered by a de Havilland ghost jet that developed some 6,000 horsepower. The Crusader was designed to rise onto the two skis, or steps, that set it about halfway back on each side. First trials indicated that the rudder did not give sufficient control, and the rudder was replaced with a larger one. The craft also leaked until the jet pipe was resealed into the stern. Final subtitle, Last Great Sportsman. At Inverness, Cobb's body lay in a hospital. A Union Jack fluttered limply over the Cobb home. Britain has lost one of the greatest sportsmen of our time, said A.T. Goldie Gardner, a 61-year-old speed driver. As a schoolboy, Cobb was kicked in the spine while playing football and lay on his back for two years. He finally recovered and went through Eton and Cambridge and became by occupation a fur broker, but by love of racing, a driver. His ambition was to travel more than 400 miles an hour. Cobb spent a small fortune achieving that goal as he set records at the Utah Salt Flats in 1937, traveling 350 miles an hour, only to lose it the next day to Captain George Easton. The following year, however, Cobb returned and regained the land speed record with an average of 369 miles an hour. In 1947, with the same car, he raised his unchallenged figure to 394 miles an hour, where the record still stands. On one of his runs, he ran 403 miles an hour. Cobb's death was a seminal moment here in this chase, and it is, it is something to speak of, the fact that they found his body immediately. It took 50 years to find the boat. It was July 5, 2002, when the actual wreckage of the Crusader was found in Loch Ness by underwater radar means. So with Cobb Cobb passing away in this uh, very kind of brutal fashion, it opened the door for somebody else to come back onto the scene and try to run down the record again. Understanding now that we're at speeds where people just don't really have any sort of data to build something to maintain the safety level. And it should be mentioned that Cobb's boat was open cockpit and he was thrown from it. What had happened was, by most accounts, Outside of that news story that basically kind of alludes to the fact the boat exploded, it did not explode. What had happened was, as Cobb was beginning to slow down from that 200-some mile an hour speed, the front of the skis, those those sponsons we talked about, those floats on the outsides, um, began to kind of bob up and down. The edges caught the, the, the water, and once the edges caught the water, much like a skier catching an edge, it just took the boat and, and basically flipped it over and destroyed it instantaneously. So... That ends John Cobb's life. That ends John Cobb's legacy as a as a land speed record setter, as a water speed record setter, and it opens up the door for another um, deadly kind of episode here. A man named Mario Verga was born in Milan, Italy in 1910. Verga would become the next man to mount a very, very serious attempt at trying to set this water speed record. 
and his boat was very interesting. It was built in the kind of Italian fashion, almost like a, a Formula One car. It was very small. It was very light, and it was a boat that um, used a, a racing engine. It did not use a it did not use an airplane engine. It did not use a turbine. It used a piston engine. And as he was streaking across a lake in 1954, he kissed his wife and daughter goodbye on October 9th, went out on the wake on the lake, put the hammer down, and at a speed of 190 miles an hour, in excess of Stan Sayer's record, in a boat called the Laura 3, its flame-red beauty flashing on the lake with a fountain of spray behind, the boat took flight, lifted into the air, and flipped over backwards, killing Verga immediately. So now it's two guys in two years that have died trying to beat Stanley Sayers' record. It should be mentioned that Stanley Sayers would die early in his life, too, of a heart attack. He was not killed in a boat, but he did die in a, 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 a natural fashion, much like Malcolm Campbell, certainly unlike Cobb and unlike Verga. The death of Verga was covered internationally as well. The Fresno Bee of Fresno, California, October 10, 1954. The United Press story reads, Italian motorboat champion is killed trying to set Mark. Mario Verga, 44, the Italian motorboat champion, was killed yesterday on the calm waters of Lake Dizio when his speedboat sank while he was trying to beat the United States-held water speed world record. Verga was traveling at an estimated speed of 185 to 190 miles an hour when his Laura 3 suddenly lifted and flew into the air. Initial attempts to hoist the boat and the body of the speed pilot proved unsuccessful. Lake Desio is 45 miles east of Milan, Italy. Verga, who raced for several different drivers or owners over the course of his speedboat career, had good results in Florida and was trying to beat the world record for speedboats held by American Stanley Sayers, who drove his slow motion at an average speed of 179 miles an hour in 1952. And undaunted, the record setters kept coming. Donald Campbell now enters the scene, and he enters the scene with a boat that will be perhaps the most defining craft in the history of the water speed record, a bluebird called K-7. And K-7, again, the K standing for the fact that it was uh, this, this Lloyd's of London class of insurance. It's an unlimited boat, and it is the seventh boat built in this class to try to set this record. Donald Campbell worked with a guy named Leo Villa, who his father had worked with, a brilliant engineer. He was in many ways kind of like a Phil Remington type, for those who are familiar with um, with the, the story of Carroll Shelby and, and the racing world of Carroll Shelby, along with their triumph at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Uh, Phil Remington is a, a central figure there. He's a brilliant mechanical mind. And Leo Villa was that guy for Donald Campbell, as he had been for his father, Malcolm. And their, their failure in K4 led them to design a completely new craft. And they went to a, a couple of guys called the Norris Brothers, and the Norris brothers, along with Villa and with Campbell, they studied Crusader's crash and, and Cobb's death for hours and hours to understand how to overcome that particular problem. And what they came up with was a, a boat that was unlike anything that had ever been built to that point. It came, was I should say, was uh, powered by a Metropolitan Vickers turbine. They named the engine Beryl, B-E-R-Y-L. For what reason, I, I really don't know what the significance of that name is. This is a 4,000-pound thrust engine, drank 650 gallons of fuel an hour, sucked in three tons of air a minute, and it was the most powerful and efficient engine that had ever been put in a boat of this nature. The boat looks like, um, it looks like a lobster. And again, please go look at pictures, but it is a, it is a different design than anybody has used before. 
It uses what we would call a pickle fork hull now, meaning that these 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 outriggers, the tripoint, you know, the tripoint hydroplane idea. So if you think about a lobster with its two claws out, think of the two claws as the front kind of uh, part of the hull. There is an open space in between, and the middle section of the boat is a cigar shape that comes to the back, and there's a, a what we would call a planing foot on the back of that hull. All this means is when the boat gets up to speed, it's going to rise up on those front two parts of the hull, those, those pickle fork style hull, the claws, if you will, and the third point of contact will be just that tiny planing shoe or planing foot at the back of the hull. So this will provide very little drag. The boat itself was designed with the aerodynamics in mind, almost like an aircraft, and it hit the water in 1955. It hits the water in 55, and initially it is unsuccessful. They're having all kinds of problems kind of getting it, um, even to kind of do even the basic things at low speed. And it is embarrassing to Campbell that they're having these problems, but fundamentally this boat is designed to do the right things. They're just trying to get the initial bugs worked out of it. And it takes them a little while to do it. They had been trying to get the U.S. Navy, they've been trying to get the, the Royal uh, the Royal Navy of England to watch this and pay attention to it. They believed that if they could get the military interested and involved, they could make some money off this thing and maybe sell them some of the design elements or get some work, um, you know, engineering projects for the Norris Brothers and things of that nature. So there's also this this 200-mile-an-hour barrier that they talked about, the, the 200-mile-an-hour kind of wall, so to speak. And this is something of Campbell's almost own creation to help build the the mystique around what he's attempting to do here. Remember, when airplanes were getting ready to break the sound barrier, there's this idea that if you broke the sound barrier, you'd, you would experience some incredible vibration, and anything that was flying through that speed would be immediately shattered to pieces. And Campbell kind of played upon this to to build the drama, if you will, around what he was trying to do. And he claimed effectively the same thing was going to happen to a boat that went 200 miles an hour. It took them until July of 1955 to get things to the point where they felt comfortable of really trying to get after it. So on July 23rd, 1955, uh, Donald Campbell, with his bad back, and, and he was very sore from making runs previously. He's kind of beat up, but he straps himself in the boat. There was a very few people that even showed up to watch this thing. He's at the Ulsterwater. Uh, that's the name of the lake that he's on. And he gets in there and makes his runs. And Bluebird completes two runs at 202.32 miles an hour average, destroying the record by 24 miles an hour, a humongous leap forward. And what was kind of funny about this, he made the runs. He thought it was pretty fast. His radio communication with his crew broke down, so he had no idea. So it took him all the time to get the thing kind of motored back into shore and get it pulled up. He was asking people what happened, what happened, and he had broken the record. And this was a huge seminal moment in his life. It was certainly a giant moment in the history of the water speed record, the first man to ever travel 200 miles an hour on the water. And as we we're going to find out, Donald Campbell was just getting started. But boy, this was one heck of a start. Here's a world record to wonder at. Onlookers lining the shores of Lake Oswater see 34-year-old Donald Campbell, while suffering acute pain in his back and legs, take out his turbojet Bluebird on what is only meant to be a trial run with an old engine. His wife and mother stand by and nobody expects headline news. Yet within a few minutes, the world water speed record will have been smashed by a handsome margin.
this helmet and mask once belonged to test pilot Neville Duke. Bluebird earrings are Mrs. Dorothy Campbell's choice of mascot. He's away, just another test run, says Donald. Bluebird's speed indicator can only register 200. But although she's nowhere near flat out, the needle's way beyond the end of the scale. He simply doesn't know how. And so Campbell, with that run, sets himself over 200 miles an hour and, and puts himself in this uh, in this league that his dad was in. And Campbell had a very strange relationship with his father. It was very competitive and, and it was very destructive. He would spend his entire life trying to make his dad proud. Even at long after his father had died, he was still really kind of almost chasing the man's ghost. These attempts, building the boat and actually running the 200-mile-an-hour stuff, um, basically bankrupted him. He He had spent a lot of money to get to this point and he spent so much money to get to this point he was very desperate to do anything he could to make more money so uh he got in contact somehow with the las vegas chamber of commerce and las vegas chamber of commerce invited him kind of all expenses paid including flying the the boat from england to the united states and uh to go out there and, and attempt to set the record on lake mead and because of the fact that he needed the publicity, needed the money, and frankly, doing this in America in front of an audience on Wide World of Sports was so attractive, he took the offer. And Wide World of Sports at this time um, in history, you know, 50 million people a week were watching this show. So it was as big a, as big a get as you could possibly have. And so Campbell goes over to Las Vegas, and he is trying to set the record in front of this television audience and basically Lake Mead and the conditions weren't great. He goes out, runs 160. It just wasn't really what he was trying to uh, trying to do in front of that audience. Uh, but the good news is, despite the fact that the TV appearance was not cool and the fact that he hit a wave after one of these runs and the boat sank, they were able to quickly fish it out of the water and, and work on it. On November, I should say in early November, basically November 9th, um, they had taken the boat out. They had cleaned it up, fixed it up. The, the sinking was in shallow water, so it only took them like eight or nine hours to get it out of there. And this thing being entirely mechanical, it didn't have a lot of electrical issues to be worried about. They put the boat back in the water after some after some work. Um, they did a couple of uh, test runs on the 9th. The wind picked up, and he decided that he was going to wait again. We get to November 16th of that year, and the boat was in very, very good shape. It was clean, it was fast, and it was ready to kind of be be showed off in front of this American crowd. To go to the World Water Speed Record book, we talk about these runs that were made on November 16th. The two runs are reasonably uneventful. Crowd control is not a problem this time as the patrol boats have been very strict about the lake. The water was calm enough for Bluebird to actually reach around 250 miles an hour as it left the flying kilometer on its first run. That caused a mild panic when it looked like there wouldn't be enough room to slow down, but Campbell zigzagged as he approached the bank, and disaster was averted. The second run was appreciably slower after it hit a ground swell, and that was attributed to the severe winds of the previous day. K-7 found itself airborne for a few dramatic seconds, but it landed in the water, and the mean average was 216.2 miles an hour, a second world water speed record for the pilot and the boat in four months. This made headlines. The Dothan Eagle of Dothan, Alabama, November 17, 1955. Donald Campbell sets new mark at 216 miles an hour. Fantastic time of 239.5 reached during one run. Dateline, Boulder City, Nevada. 
British speedboat king Donald Campbell today was already thinking about trying to better the new world's record mark of 216 miles an hour, he said on Wednesday in the jet-propelled Bluebird 2. Quote, but I'd rather not talk too much about that now, he said, adding another try would have to wait until next year. Campbell, 34 years old and the son of the late Malcolm Campbell, whose original Bluebird held the world record from 1937 until 1949, pushed his craft to the fantastic speed of 239.5 miles an hour on Lake Mead Wednesday, just before the waters became too choppy for such a run. The roughness held him to 193.1 miles an hour on the return run. But his average was nearly 14 miles an hour faster than his record of 202.32 sent last July at Lake Ulstwater in England. He said of the return trip, it was so rough it nearly took my head off. The dangerous business is dangerous business is the next subtitle. Campbell faced almost certain death had anything gone wrong during the high-speed runs. John Cobb, another British speed demon, was killed in Scotland three years ago when his boat disintegrated after reaching 206 miles an hour. Mario Verga of Italy was killed last year just before reaching 200 miles an hour. Campbell was confident, however, because of his own previous record mark and the speeds of 200 miles an hour or better attained in his trials here, during which he vowed he would set a new mark or bust. Wednesday's first run cracking the water barrier of 200 miles an hour was called fantastic by chief timer Kent Hitchcock. The two-and-a-half-ton speedboat moved over the course smoothly on the east-west trip, but on the return, after a quick refueling, the Bluebird bucked and twisted over the rising swells. Campbell said he was thinking about some modifications that might make the Bluebird a little faster. He said he'd be trying to get such ideas on the drawing board during the winter months after he returns to England. And it would be an awesome few years for Donald Campbell because he would come back out in 1956, would smash his record and move the average to 225 miles an hour after hitting 286 miles an hour on one run. And he had a benefactor at this point because every time he would set a record, he was earning $5,000 or 5,000 pounds of money. So 1956, he has made a, a CBE um, you know, as uh, in England, this is a, a big honor, and it's certainly something that um, really kind of delighted him and, and helped his social status, certainly helped his ability to find and raise money. In 1957, he bumps the record again. He bumps it by another 14 miles an hour in the same boat, 239.07 miles an hour. And again, now we're getting closer and closer to this magical 250-mile-an-hour mark, and he has proven that this idea of a you know, of a 200 mile an hour, you know, some sort of magical barrier just does not exist. He goes back out in, in 1958, sets the record again. And the problem for Donald Campbell starts to kind of rear its head here in the sense of um, when it's only one guy doing this and there's no real back and forth and there's no real other challengers, which other people had built boats, but they all had failed miserably. They never even came close. The public starts to lose a little bit of interest. But in 1959, he reinvigorated his entire program. Because in 1959, he not only set a record, he set a massive record and broke the 250-mile-an-hour barrier with flying colors. Bluebird was set to go. Coniston water smooth as glass. The official timekeepers alerted. Donald Campbell sent the jet hydroplane full out along the measured kilometer. had to go each way over the course to find the necessary average speed for two runs. On the first one, the incredible figure was 275.15 miles an hour. Now back, over water disturbed by the first run.
return was not quite so fast, 2.45. But that put the average at 260.35 miles an hour. What a moment for Donald Campbell, his wife Tonia, and ace mechanic Leo Villa. The last record was beaten by just a fraction under 12 miles an hour. Perhaps the next record attempt will be in Canada. And then if he beats the land record too, Donald Campbell will retire from the speed race. Congratulations and may the good luck stay with him. Croaking that 250 mile an hour barrier, resetting the record to 260, again brought worldwide headlines. This from the Ottawa Journal, the Ottawa, Ontario, Canada paper from May 14, 1959. And it begins Coniston, England. Donald Campbell today raised his own world water record speed from 248 to 260 miles an hour when he drove his jet-powered hydroplane Bluebird in two runs over the measured kilometer course on Lake Coniston. On his first run from the north to the south, Campbell clocked an official 275 miles an hour, and on the return north trip to the north, he made 245.55. Campbell touched 265 miles an hour in a trial run on the lake last night when the patrol boat stationed around the the morning reported good conditions, he decided to try for a new record. Accompanied by his wife, Tanya, they arrived lakeside just after the Bluebird had launched down the slipway. Climbing into the cockpit, he buckled onto his stomach and shoulder harnesses, donned his yellow helmet, and clipped the mouthpiece to his bottled air supply. Two amateur frogmen sat in the patrol boat, standing by for emergencies as Campbell set off from the first run over the measured kilometer. Bluebird was soon riding on her three one-foot-wide planing surfaces and at one end of each sponson and one on the stern. At the end of his first run, his chief mechanic Leo Villa signaled to Campbell to take it easy on the return trip. Four minutes after completing his first leg, Campbell was on his way back to the south-to-north run. At the end of his trip, Villa, confident that his boss had superseded all, signaled patrol boats to return to base, adding the words thumbs up to his message. A starter boat went out to tow Campbell into the jetty, and as Donald and his wife waved at each other. Bluebird was brought alongside the jetty where Tanya stopped aboard and sat in the cockpit kissing her husband. I was just praying all the time, said Mrs. Campbell. This was the first occasion that Lady Campbell, Donald's mother, had not been present to see her son's record bid. When the timekeepers had confirmed the record, Campbell thanked everybody, concerned with the boat and organizing organization, and said, I suppose this is possibly the last record attempt we shall ever make in England. Why would he say something like that? Because Donald Campbell is always trying to get the headlines, and certainly he was trying to maybe goad people into saying, no, we love you, please stay here, we'll help you support your mission, we'll help you do all this stuff. And what Campbell really decided to do at this point was to pursue the land speed record. He wanted to have them both, just like his father had done, and just like his previous you know, heroes had done in this record-setting world. That means that Bluebird K7 and the water speed record would sit still for seven years. We're not going to start talking about this again until 1964. As Campbell goes out there and eventually works very hard, he has a Bluebird land speed car built called the CN7. Uh, it is a monstrous machine that uses a turbine engine, but it is wheel-driven. And so in 1964, he goes out and he manages to, to set the world's land speed record, and he broke the, broke the record uh, at 403 miles an hour average, which is kind of interesting when we talk about that, that one-way speed that Cobb had back in the day of 403. He averages 403 miles an hour, and he becomes the first man to ever average a 400-mile-an-hour speed on land. So it is pretty interesting. He does this in Australia. So following Seagrave, following Campbell, he now becomes the third guy in the world to have both records at the same time. 
What he now wants to do is put another kind of element on this, and he wants to reset the water speed record to be the first guy to set both records in the same year and not just kind of have them. He was beloved in Australia, but by this time, people in England had kind of gotten tired of Donald Campbell. And it was interesting because um, when he had gone down to set this record in Australia, he had failed multiple times, and he was starting to look like kind of a, I don't want to say a national embarrassment, but this idea of of him being a national hero was pretty much over in England. And, you know, Campbell became kind of bitter about this and, and certainly was um, was not in the same mindset he had been earlier. Not only was he chasing his dad, he was now kind of chasing the love of his country. But 1964, he sets that record. Less and less people are caring about this stuff. Why? Because there's a space race on. It changes the whole dynamic of what this water speed record chase is about because now people are way more concerned and interested about rockets, about going to space. These speeds on land of 400 miles an hour pale in comparison to what planes are making, pale in comparison certainly to what the rockets are making, sending astronauts into space, and certainly um, the idea of trying to go 200-some miles an hour on the water and maybe break the 300-mile-an-hour barrier is not really as uh, appealing if you will, or as enthralling to the public as it was back in the day. But undaunted, he decides that he is going to have these records and he's going to uh, reset them, I should say, in the same year. There happens to be a small wrinkle in this plan, though, and that wrinkle's name is Lee Taylor, who is a drag racer and a hot rodder from California and also a guy who is obsessed with trying to set the water speed record. And in 1964, Lee Taylor works with Reynolds Aluminum, works with several other big sponsors to build a boat called the Hustler, which was a tubular, very narrow boat, driver sitting at the very front, and it is a craft that is designed to go 300 miles an hour. So Lee Taylor decides that he's going to go out there and take this record away from Donald Campbell, 1964 of the year he's going to do it, and Lee Taylor, who will reappear later in our story, is one of the bravest men in the world, and in this case, one of the most unlucky. We read from the Press-Telegram of Long Beach, California, April 14, 1964. The title of the story, written by Sherm Williams, is 300-mile-an-hour boat hits beach, nearly killing Downey Pilot. Lee Taylor leaps clear, loses scalp, revolutionary craft seeking record as it overturns in lake. Rather, as it overruns lake by Sherm Williams. Downey Speedboat pilot Lee Taylor was injured critically today when his jet-powered hydroplane, traveling an estimated 300 miles an hour, thundered out of control on Lake Havasu and smashed into the shore. Estimates of Taylor's speed when he ran into the sloping shore of the lake varied to in excess of 150 knots by the Coast Guard to about 300 miles an hour by a spokesman for Harvey Aluminum, the builders of the boat. An Army helicopter crashed during Taylor's rescue from shallow water. Taylor was rushed to Las Vegas by a second helicopter for emergency treatment. Doctors said he was nearly scalped, probably had a skull fracture, broken ankle, hip, and other injuries. He was semi-conscious and apparently was responding to treatment. Gene Alfred, a Harvey Aluminum spokesman, said that the 10,000-horsepower aluminum-skinned boat made a slow pass down the Colorado River, and then Lee turned around and poured it on. He must have, quote-unquote, run out of room. He must have been going 300 miles an hour when he hit the beach, Alfred said. He jumped out of the cockpit just before it hit and landed in the water. The boat skidded about 25 feet up the beach. Taylor, the father of three small girls, was pursuing what he had termed a dream of mine for years. 
In the revolutionary craft, he was trying to beat the present world record of 260.35 miles an hour set by Donald Campbell in May of 1959. One man has been killed and another injured in earlier attempts to reset this water speed record. Continuing from the story, the 30-foot needle-shaped nose, this 30-foot needle-nosed Hustler was built of wood and covered with a thin aluminum skin because of its design, Taylor rode in a nearly supine position and wore oxygen equipment. Conditions on Lake Havasu and the Colorado River north of Parker Dam were termed perfect on the attempt and the record made by Taylor today. It was going so high and so beautifully, Alfred said. Coast Guard Lieutenant Commander Robert McClellan, patrol officer for the area, estimated the speed in excess of 150 knots when the Hustler went aground in the Californian side of the lake. He made one slow run from the east to west, fueled up, and then made another slow run west to east. Then he ran from east to west and hit a pretty good speed. He either didn't cut his power or couldn't stop and went straight onto the beach. An Army helicopter hovering overhead and a Coast Guard man jumped in to help Taylor. As the two were being hoisted, the helicopter crashed. A patrol boat rescued the two. No one aboard the chopper was hurt. Doctors at Sunrise Hospital in Vegas, about 150 miles from the crash scene, credited the gradual slope of the beach with saving Taylor from instant death. He hit the ground off the water doing 40 to 50 miles an hour, one doctor said. The hydroplane said, The hydroplane, Alfred said, can be repaired. Plastic foam was scattered all over the beach and the bottom is damaged, but we can fix her. Taylor operates a cutlery sharpening business and provided most of the financing for the boat, which was designed by Rich Hallett. Taylor started racing in Long Beach's Marine Stadium and had reached 115 miles an hour in earlier speed trials, but had hoped to exceed 300 miles an hour on both legs of the two-mile course today. So Lee Taylor survives what is the craziest crash maybe we've heard about yet. The boat running out of room on the lake, him maybe not understanding how early he had to be off the throttle, and he runs into the shore at a very high rate of speed. The Harvey Aluminum guy says 150 miles an hour. The uh, or rather, the the Harvey Aluminum guy said 300 miles an hour. Coast Guard guy says 150. The doctors say 40 to 50. Either way, this is a disaster. Boat is destroyed. Taylor never really is able to have this boat rebuilt, and, and he is permanently injured because of this. Always walked with a limp for the rest of his life. Apparently had one of his eyes that was severely damaged as well when all was said and done. The idea that these two guys are being hoisted up and the helicopter crashed. I mean, when the rescue helicopter crashes, you know you're having a very bad day. Campbell gets reports of this down in Australia and decides he is not going to sit around and wait for somebody to take something from him. Having already been located in Australia doing the land speed runs on Lake Air down there, the, the salt lake that he was using, he decides that it is also going to be Australia where he will reset the water speed record. So he finds one of the most out-of-the-way places anybody has ever used. Remember, we talked about records being set in Argentina back in the early 1900s. Well, Lake Dumbleyung near Perth was chosen. And Lake Dumbleyung was located in this tiny town. It had basically um, about 400 people that lived there. And the town readily accepted Campbell. The, really, the country of Australia had readily accepted Campbell. And that, to me, is one of the reasons why he chose Australia for this particular uh, record attempt. He knew he would get headlines there, and he felt as though he was more welcome there than anywhere else. The lake was six miles long, three miles wide, and that was pretty much enough. I mean, we talk about Taylor going off the uh, off the side of the Lake Havasu, and Campbell, with all of experience, is better equipped to understand how much room he needs, but this is fairly tight for what he's trying to do. Six miles long and three wide does not give you a whole lot of room, despite the fact that's a very large body of water. 
there was a wind that came through every afternoon, and that was one of the concerns. It was also duck hunting season, and the locals would go down to the water with shotguns and, and, and either shoot the ducks or shoot at the ducks to keep them off the water. So this record attempt happening in the absolute middle of nowhere um, for basically the self-interest of Donald Campbell to only move his own mark ahead was successful. It was very successful. Successful for the town, successful for Campbell, and successful in bumping his own record to 276.33 miles an hour. This is what it sounded like. I think we're speaking now to two of the most excited people in the world, Donald Campbell and his wife, Tanya. How are you, Donald? How do you, how do you feel now? Well, very relieved. We've been terribly lucky here at Dumble Young as we were at Lake Year. Uh, had we another quarter of an hour, we would have missed it. We just had those few minutes, and we were able to take advantage of them. That's right. This Albany, Dr. Breeze, came in very quickly. Well, it does every night, and it's a matter of um, you know, almost seconds rather than minutes. I think sure. I feel sure that you'll have something to say to all your team here at Lake Dumbledore, too, on the lakeside. Well, my word, we've already had something to say to them uh, over the radio, and, uh, well, this is the first time that any one team has taken these two records in the same year, and uh, we're jolly grateful that it's been us. In fact, we're glad that we'd be able to do it here in Australia. And what about celebrations tonight? Are you going into the town of Dumbledore? Well, we, we certainly will be, yes, uh, because we want to show our thanks and appreciation to all the boys here at Dumbledore who've worked so hard uh, for a long time. I think at this particular stage, on behalf of everyone here in Australia, I'd like to congratulate you, Donald Campbell, and also congratulations to you. We wish you all the very, very best. Thank, Thank you very much. Donald Campbell has made it the first man in history to break both the world land and water speed records in the same calendar year with just eight hours to spare. For the record book, Leo Villa tells him Bluebird clocked 269 miles an hour on that final run, giving an average of 276 miles an hour, a world record. And so this is, this is really the, the greatest triumph of Campbell's life. As mentioned, you know, he wanted to set these records in the same year, um, and he did it on New Year's Eve with barely hours to spare. And so, you know, there are so many details you can go into these stories, but I just feel like um, for the interest of, of this show, which is already incredibly long, that we continue the discussion moving ahead. And the problem with setting records like Campbell has done, not only are you almost racing yourself and that loses some of the mystique, but also you have to keep trying to top yourself. And once you do this, once you set both of these records in the same year, what comes next? And the obvious answer for water is 300 miles an hour. The answer for land that Campbell wanted to do was 1,000 miles an hour. He got together with the, his favorite designers and engineers. They came up with a vehicle they called the Bluebird CN8, and this was going to be a rocket-powered, needle-shaped land-speed machine that was going to attempt to run 1,000 miles an hour. It was never funded. It was never built. A full-size mock-up was made, but other than that, it never, um, it never came to anything. Campbell was very depressed during this time in his life, from 1964 up until the late 1966 time frame, and he decides in late 1966, after working for years to get more money up and, and update the boat, that he was going to um, he was going to run after that 300 mile an hour barrier. And this is a guy that's, again, chasing his dad, never able to catch him. His father died before he was able to see any of Donald's triumphs. And he was, he was really trying to almost get back into the uh, kind of into the, the love of the British people that he had lost 
they were now all concerned with satellites and rockets and 500-mile-an-hour cars and 300-mile-an-hour boats just weren't really cutting the mustard. So with an updated Orpheus engine, the K-7, the same boat that was setting records in 1955, is going to head back to the water in 1966 and into 1967. So he gets out there in November of 1966, and we're leading up to likely what is one of the most famous record-setting moments of all time because of how it was captured and certainly because of its, dare I say, disturbing nature. So the Orpheus engine is now 1,000 pounds more thrust powerful than they had previously, and in November of 1966, they are, you know, working to get them working to get the boat kind of lined out and fitted out. And the, the, this is not the... This is not the same level that they're used to racing at, right? They, the sponsorship money is all but gone. Their accommodations are pretty are pretty kind of uh, shabby. Um, their boathouse has got like tarps hanging off of it. It really is. Um, it really is something that that we've seen this height of popularity and kind of um, uh, kind of coming back down to earth again. So the boat is running about two hundred. It's not doing what he wants it to do. And again, they have very little money. And they're trying to just get this thing to go 300 miles an hour. So on December 21st, uh, he goes out there and runs the, the machine up and down the lake at an unofficial speed of 285 miles an hour. It's unofficial because the we're in December now of 1966, and the people that are on the team and the timing officials went home for Christmas. He wanted them to stay. He wanted to make his run on Christmas Day, which again maybe speaks to the ego and speaks to what he's trying to do. But he kind of had a mutiny on his hands. A bunch of people left. He goes out there and runs 285 miles an hour for really no no gain or no point. There was nobody to certify it, so it just kind of happened. Leo Villa was very angry that he went out and did that because he felt like it was um, he felt like it was just uh, uh, the wrong thing to do and, and an unnecessary risk. January third. Campbell, who is a very superstitious man, is playing cards with his friends, getting ready to make his next attempt, which would be the following day, for 300 miles an hour. And he is playing a game called Russian Patience, which I believe is a form of solitaire, and he's flipping cards over. And Campbell, the superstitious man, looks up and says to a reporter, and I quote from the World Water Speed Record book, that's it. Mary Queen of Scots drew the same combination the night before she was beheaded. Well, it's somebody in my family that's going to get the chop. I pray to God it's not me. He prayed, and it was ineffectual. On January 1st, 4th, 1967, Donald Campbell walked down the slipway around 8 a.m. towards the waiting bluebird. The conditions seemed right for a run with a calm lake, although Leo Villa later said he advised Donald against making a run due to the water not being exact. But he told, don't mess about, Unc. Let's get her out. He'd effectively brushed past a handful of pressmen who were present, but without attempting to make each and every one of those final moments significant beyond the norm, it seemed as if he was in a hurry to get the whole thing over with. This was a record attempt that was being played out to a totally dis disinterested co country with little or no financial backing and for what seemed like a personal crusade to constantly prove himself as good as his father. The omens weren't good, but then, if the attempt had been successful, none of this would have mattered. And we continue. Ten minutes later, he was strapped into the cockpit, but there was a delay while Mr. Wappet, his doll that he used to carry with him as a, uh, a, a luck uh, keepsake, was found. Campbell was ready to go then, announcing he would make a slow run first to test the water. By this time, a few spectators had arrived along the shore, and it finally appeared that a record was about to be witnessed, and yet more history made. 
The slow runs were not to be taken seriously as Donald had made up his mind to go for the record then and there. To be fair, all the team knew this to be the case. The support boats were in place, the timekeepers in position, and the television and film cameras at the ready. After all the frustrations of the previous few months, this would be a successful result, and it should again capture the public's imagination and give Campbell that step up to the proposed speed of sound barrier he had openly talked about. At 8.45 a.m., Bluebird raced off in a flurry of spray and noise disappearing quickly into the distance. The first run down the south of Lake Coniston Water was actually the best Campbell had ever made in the boat. It flew majestically without a blip of complaining murmur. As ever, Donald gave full commentary to his team as he was driving, and it's appropriate to reprint it here to give an idea of how this whole attempt was shaping up. These are Campbell's actual words as he's driving the boat. I've got a fair amount of water here, and without the mask on, just as soon as I'm heading down the lake, uh, don't know. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Four and five coming up, a lot of water. Nose beginning to lift. A lot of water coming again, and the nose is up. Left and right sponsons are up. It's up and away. Vision clear. Tramping very hard at 150. Very hard indeed. Trying for full power. I still can't get over the top. Full house. Full house. Full house. Now that's three. The three meaning 300 miles an hour. That was what they were trying to do. He only needed to do it a second time. And that, of course, became a tragic problem. Those were the last words of Donald Campbell. It was soon after dawn that Bluebird was got ready for the record attempt. There was little wind, the water was smooth. The evening before, Donald Campbell drew the ace and queen of spades, the deadly shadow of remorseless fate. He was a superstitious man. Dedicated, his mission in life coming before everything. The Orpheus jet was easily capable of driving Bluebird at 300 miles an hour. British, the record had to remain. He had driven his sports car for the last time. Though on that perfect first run, there was no hint of tragedy. timed him at 297 miles an hour. With luck, the new record would be his. But luck had run out. Fate was to strike. He had sacrificed his life for speed, as centuries ago, men dared the oceans and found new worlds, scaled mountains into lands beyond, and sailed out of Plymouth to circumnavigate the globe. None could imagine at that moment the depth of grief of Leo Villa, who served the Campbells, father and son, nearly 45 years. All he saw here was the debris left upon the lake. 
5,000 years ago, they said, let us now praise famous men. And in Lake Coniston now laid the body of a famous man who was among the bravest of the brave. This epic age, which soon will know man's conquest to the moon, must count its losses too. Great Britain mourns the loss of a great man, Donald Campbell. Campbell's death was a massive, massive story in England. Um, you know, a national tragedy on the order of of national tragedies like the death of Princess Diana and others. It became fairly commonplace to have people, you know, kind of ask, "Hey, where were you when Donald Can- Donald Campbell was killed?" And so uh, we read from the Monroe News Star, Monroe, Louisiana, January fourth, nineteen sixty-seven. Title of the story by the Associated Press: Donald's British Luck Played Out. Donald Malcolm Campbell's heart ticked with national pride. He lived for speed, and through speed on land and water, he expressed the patriotic zeal that surged through his body. He was the son of Sir Malcolm Campbell, who, like him, had at one time held the world's record for the fastest time on land and water. Donald achieved this double in 1964. The cry, the best of British luck, Donald, may have been cliché, but it was the music to Donald Campbell's soul. Campbell's inspired a, a messianic faith in his team of engineers and helpers. They work with me, not for me, he had said. It's the cause that counts. Campbell achieved 403.1 miles an hour on land and his gas turbine-powered Bluebird, 276.33 miles an hour on the water and his jet hydroplane speedboat of the same name. Campbell, a shot in the dark, a shot and dark man with Napoleonic energy and blue eyes, wore cream shirts with navy blue birds on them. His third wife was Tanya Byrne, a Belgian model and entertainer who had recently returned to her nightclub singing. Campbell took pride in the fantastic Campbells, and he always was aware of the risk that ran in his activities. He was something of a mystic. He once said you get funny feelings. You'd be very unwise to ignore them. He knew what danger he faced, and when he went on the speed run, he said one's plenty apprehensive, he said. Make no mistake about that. The question almost everybody asked about Campbell was what drove him to speed. The answer to many would be irrelevant and anachronistic. He was a pure red, white, and blue patriot. He seethed with national fervor. Those who scoffed at him saw a rank jingoist. He saw his scoffers as cardboard cutouts betraying their British heritage. Campbell came near death six years ago when his Bluebird car crashed at more than 300 miles an hour while he was trying to break the land speed record. He later told how he gets how he gets scared, but not because of the crash, because it made me realize how close to death we always are. While I'm sitting here talking to you, he said, I just can get frightened thinking that I might have a heart attack or get lung cancer. Donald Campbell always believed that with his Bluebird ventures, he was playing a part in the reasserting British nationalism and independence. I want to show the rest of the world what we can do. The British are the salt of the earth. For 15 years, we've been going to the dogs. Interesting kind of take there on Campbell's life and legacy. And what is even more interesting is the fact that after dying in this attempt in 1967 to set the record, he would no longer have the water speed record by the end of the year. And the man who would take it from him is a guy that we just talked about a few minutes ago who had survived a horrendous accident in the United States in 1964 who, like Campbell, was incredibly driven, who would never give up, and who was refusing to do anything but earn the national honor of this speed record back for the United States. Yes, in fact, it was Lee Taylor who came back in 1967 and snatched the record away from the late Donald Campbell.
The Hustler, a jet boat rigged to challenge world speed records and make its owner driver, Californian Lee Taylor, the fastest man afloat. The goal, the late Donald Campbell's official mark of 276.3 miles an hour, set in Australia in 64 with the turbojet craft Bluebird. Ready for the first run. Hustler almost does it, hitting 276 flat. Though short of the official record, Taylor remains confident he and his boat can even top the unofficial mark of 286. During these time trials, wind conditions were not ideal. Runs are made in both directions, and averages fixed with wind and water speed canceled out. Hustler's day is yet to come. And so it is kind of funny that there is no actual video or audio that I could grab of Taylor setting the record in 67. It was just that that particular story of the attempt that didn't quite get there. But at 9 a.m. on June 30th, 1967, Lee Taylor took the Hustler through a first run of 299 miles an hour, reaching a peak speed of 315. And on the return run, a lady in a pleasure boat ran across the route of the Hustler and he had to slow down dramatically, only clocking 250 miles an hour to average 274, one mile an hour short of the record, five off what would have been required to be an officially guaranteed record. And Hustler freaked out on everybody, as um, as you can imagine. Now, he had a sponsor, and uh, this sponsor had been footing the bills for it. His name was John W. Bedoin, and he was a tire dealer from Compton, California. And it was really, they were running out of Bedoin's pocket. So whatever he said they would do, he said, okay, one more run before midday, and that's going to be the end of it. And so at 11 a.m., Taylor and Hustler broke the water speed record at 285.22 miles an hour, only the eighth person in history to achieve the feat since its official inception in 1928 when it was being recognized and there had been some standardization. But he was a um, he was a hero for the time being, and he and Bedoin's uh, relationship blew up immediately afterwards for reasons I, I really don't understand. I think there were large egos involved. I think that Bedoin wanted a little bit more attention than he was getting. And um, that was the way it went. So the boat was taken by Bedoin. It had been run a few more times. Never, never set the record of, uh, never set the record again. And from 1967, for a very long time, the record stood at Lee Taylor's mark, which was just an incredible comeback story. When we think about Taylor uh, and this wreck that he had, and and just the the way that. Um, the way that he was able to come back, a sports columnist named Jim Murray, who was a nationally syndicated columnist, wrote a column called All the Way Back, which ran in papers across the country. This from the Pocono Record out of Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, November 28, 1967. Murray writes, Think of all the great comebacks in history. Tunney getting, Tunney getting off the floor against Dempsey, the 1958 Yankees coming from three down to win a World Series, the 67 Boston Red Sox going from ninth to first, Notre Dame in the second half against Ohio State, Ben Hogan in golf, and I have a match for it. In 1964, when I first interviewed Lee Taylor, he was bronzed, brown-eyed young athlete from Downey, California, with a shock of jet black curly hair and an urge to go fast. He'd been a football player at the University of Washington, but boats, not games, were his real love. He was standing beside a wooden and aluminum-hulled jet water racer that day called the Hustler, a two-ton kerosene-fueled monster powered by a J-46 thrust engine that would have been a more it would have been more comfortable under a wing than under a boat. Lee Taylor wanted to go over the water faster than any human being had ever done so before. 
The next time I saw Lee Taylor was in a newspaper photo which showed him being carried ashore to a helicopter, his body broken in so many places they needed a pattern to put it back together again. Even the helicopter in which they were airlifting to the hospital out of Lake Havasu crashed. Just pray he's dead, an onlooker urged. Lee Taylor had forgotten one thing about a jet engine. It doesn't shut off like a reciprocating engine or or this end at the second you take your hand off the throttle. He'd gotten up to a speed of 200 miles an hour and only three and a half miles. When he saw the boat was going ashore, he decided he didn't want to join it, and he bailed out as his boat hit the mountain. He was in a coma for 18 days, and by the time he stopped bouncing off of rocks and into trees and skidding into the water, he was bent so far backward he looked like a U. His skull was fractured in five places. You could see his brain through one of them. He was in a coma for 18 days, and a man in a coma for that long is supposed to slowly turn into a rutabaga, not a human being. When Lee came to, the first question he asked was, What's your name? California, he answered. It was several weeks before he knew his name from a hole in the country. He had to learn to perform sophisticated functions like walking and talking. The day of his accident and two days before are gone forever from his memory. It was not until a year later that he could even sing the words to a tune which had been his favorite. His reading ran heavily to self-improvement, but more than that, a boat had crashed, but more than a boat had crashed on the rocks of Havasu that day. A marriage followed. I guess a man who takes a half hour to say pass the sugar is hard on his wife, although Lee recalls his kids didn't seem to mind. Lee rebuilt his boat along with his body and his speech, and finally he walked bravely back to his sponsors two years later and announced he was ready to make the assault once more. Donald Campbell had crashed to his death in Scotland in the meantime, and he wanted the record for America. The sponsors looked uneasily at each other and at their applicant. The eye had been restored miraculously, but it still didn't match the one that stayed in his socket. The speech was slurred, the foot dragged. They relented to the extent of letting Lee test the boat at Lake Mead, but when he balked at running under anything less than optimum conditions, they concluded he was understandably afraid of returning to the cabbage patch, and they added another driver. That driver crashed. Taylor took his boat home, rebuilt it, and took it down to Guntherville, Alabama, a town with a thousand miles of shoreline and several calm water runs. When the timing devices caught him at less than the record qualifying time, he felt that they were prejudiced against him, and they were working against him. Others thought that they were trying to do him a favor. Last June, Lee Taylor showed up at Guntherville again. This time, he slammed his boat through the slots at 288 miles an hour one way, 282 the other, for a new world's record of 285.213. Lee Taylor had come back. The thing to do is not only to go right back to the crash vehicle, but to the same bloody waters. This weekend, Lee Taylor returns to Lake Havasu in the Outboard World Championships, driving an outboard with a co-pilot, the land speed record holder Craig Breedlove. Lee hopes to keep the trip, this time, from being amphibious. Great column there by Jim Murray that speaks to the tenacity of Lee Taylor. And for 10 years, Lee Taylor's record stood. And for 10 years, nobody even really tried to break it. It was not anything people were trying to do. The risks had piled up. The deaths had piled up. Campbell's death had really put the brakes on a lot of people even attempting to do this. But there was one guy, a man in Australia, who would become the most unlikely holder of this record, who would become the most celebrated, if you will, long-term holder of this record, and to be the man who still holds the record today, despite the fact that others certainly came after him hard. His name is Ken Warby. Ken Warby is in his early 80s now, and Ken Warby's memory may not be exactly what it was back in the day, but Ken Warby is an amazing man, and we have been able to speak to Ken Warby and talk to him about his record attempts back in the 1970s. This is a story that is incredible. And it's not where the world record, water record story ends because we have a couple of postscripts after Ken Warby 
But really, this is where the story culminates, because once again, we've gone from the British nobility, we've gone from the, the engineering backgrounds, we've gone from all the big giant budgets, to now a single man in Australia who has never built a boat, who is not an engineer, but who is a guy that is convinced he can break the world's water speed record. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more. So Ken Warby's name now enters the conversation, and it enters it in a very interesting way. Warby is not a trained engineer. Warby is the definition of a hot rodder. Grew up in the country and was a, a country kind of a farm kid intuitively a great mechanic intuitively knew how to fix things and knew how to make things run and, and be you know better than they were when he got his hands on them and so Warby and his family were all kind of gearheads his brothers were racing motorcycles and they were racing kind of speedway style cars but for Ken Warby it was always the water that was kind of the the big draw and Warby as a young child had actually told his parents specifically his mom that he was actually going to break Donald Campbell's record one day which is a pretty interesting thing and this lifelong vision led him to be a very successful boat racer and a powerboat racer in the 1960s in Australia. He won uh, you know, championships in a boat called the Monte Cristo. He would uh, defend those championships for years on end. And it was apparently around this time where he got, I don't want to say obsessed, but yes, he got obsessed with setting the world water speed record. And we're talking about the early 1970s now, and Ken Warby has moved ahead of of the idea of just thinking about doing this, he's actually gone ahead and uh, bought three Royal Australian Air Force uh, Neptune Westinghouse J-34 engines that he bought from the government as surplus. They were tired, they were old, they were halfway broken, but he knew that he was going to need these engines to go set the record. Now that he had the engines, how about the boat? We go to the World Water Speed Record book again by Roy Colley. What does Roy write? The boat wasn't designed by any high-tech computer or by a skilled draftsman who measured every centimeter. It was done by Warby on his kitchen table with a pencil and a piece of paper. It was a conventional hydroplane with two sponsons at the front and one at the back. It would be made from plywood over a frame of Oregon and stiffened with fiberglass material. There were no stress calculations, but a knowledge that if it looked good, it would be good. For the next year, he single-handedly built the boat in his backyard while his long-suffering wife and children went about their day-to-day business without the input of a husband and dad. He was invited by the Australian Broadcasting Company to film a documentary on the whole project, but that wasn't taken at all seriously, especially when one of the crew arrived and saw the sheer chaos of his workshop. The hull was virtually complete and had one of the engines attached, but it was in such an odd-looking machine that the filmmaker left convinced that Warby would kill himself before even getting close to a record. Now, at this stage, the, the project was actually gaining some publicity. Um, it was not gaining a lot of money, though, and he was trying to fund this thing out of his own pocket by any means necessary. Continuing on with the book. The boat should have been an absolute disaster. How could somebody build a record-breaking machine in their own backyard without any input from technicians, computers, or engineers? It wasn't, in fact. It was a remarkable success. In the early 60s, he was going 160 miles an hour in this boat, and he was going to challenge for the Australian record, which was 163 miles an hour. 
and he had been gaining some publicity, but the problem was raising money at this point for the project was about impossible. And bearing in mind that the affinity the country had with Donald Campbell back in the 1960s, it's kind of bizarre that one of their own was trying to chase this this mythical Campbell, and he wasn't getting really any uh, any of the attention or any of the funding he needed. Now, this is where the genius of Ken Warby starts to come into play. This guy is a unique individual in the sense of, in the, in the face of odds that were just insurmountable, he never gave up. Continuing on the World Water Speed Record book. The problem of raising money was then solved in a completely unique way and surely could only have come from the radical mind of Ken Warby. He started painting for a living as a means to raise money. He'd seen a couple of friends at a shopping center building the world's biggest jigsaw puzzle for money and had persuaded them to paint a couple of miniatures to display alongside it. He never painted anything before but soon realized he had a talent for it and embarked on a strange career. Starting in a Canberra shopping center, he painted small maps of Australia in miniature. He sold these in larger versions at a profit, and soon, Warby thought of the idea of displaying the boat at the same time as to raise enough interest, and it actually worked. The money came in, and bit by bit, he was able to pay for the craft to be finished. Now, he then runs into a guy who is a very important part of this, a man named Professor Tom Fink, and he had actually worked on the Bluebird K-7. So Fink uh, asked to put a tail fin on the boat. So this thing had a, a wing on the back of it like a top fuel dragster. If you look at this, this Spirit of Australia, as we mentioned, it has that kind of you know pickle fork style hull with the two sponsons in the front, a more aerodynamic look than the Bluebird K-7, but it has this big T-style wing on the back, and again, just like you'd find a monostrut style that you'd find on a dragster. And the aerodynamics of that wing were actually not designed for cause downforce, but they were designed to counteract any lift the nose might experience. So it was really a balancing act to get the nose of the boat as far out of the water as possible without having it fly away at big speeds. Now, in 1974, he said he was going to go to Lake, Lake Dumble Young again, just like or D- Lake Dumble Young, like Donald Campbell had done, but it did not turn out. And so they had put a, you know, a, an attempt date out of 1976, and he keeps trying to find money. It's just not going the way he wants it to go. And then in 1977, he decided that he was really going to get this thing on the water, and, and he was going to do, you know, by his own hand, whatever it took to actually get out on the water. And... He picked a place called Blowering Dam in Australia, which is a very large lake, and he picked Blowering Dam because he had studied the water patterns, he had studied the wind patterns, and he understood that this was definitely uh, a a good place to do this. It was calm, the wind was normally calm, the wind was very consistent on a day-to-day basis, so he knew that if he picked the right type of the day, time of the day, he would have the right water that he needed. So the, the reception to this was actually pretty bad. And believe it or not, they were trying to chase him out of there. They, they, Blowering Dam and the residents around there wanted nothing to do with it. And we read from the book again. There had always been antagonism from the Blowering Boat Club. They weren't very receptive to me using what they considered their water. It was only a few people, one in particular. And some of it was jealousy, though some thought I was an idiot, and some thought I was disturbing a quiet haven. I had arranged for the water skiers to use the area down towards the dam where they wouldn't disturb the actual run area, but some were still unhappy. The locals and the ski boaters thought that every time we went down through there, we'd get a record, and that would be the end of it. One said of the, at the press conference, tell Warby to go somewhere else. He's now welcome here. Imagine that. You know, you're the guy who is you're the guy who's going to set this world record for your country. It is going to be a, a huge headline, and you're being chased out by people who want to go, you know, water skiing. And Leo Villa, of course, who worked very closely with Campbell, 
uh, was very dismissive of the project. He said, oh, you know, what, who cares about Warby? You guys haven't even gotten 250 yet. And once you go past 250, then, then really that's when he's going to run into a bunch of these problems. So November 18th of 1977, they go to Blowering Dam, and uh, they get there like 2 a.m., get a couple hours sleep, and get ready to uh, get ready to rock and roll. On November 18th, they returned to the lake along with Tom Fink, who had serious concerns about the use of an afterburner. It clearly refused to work, so they came up with the idea that if they cut two inches off the rudder, they could save around 2,400 pounds of drag at 300 miles an hour, in turn producing another 400 pounds of thrust. Warby immediately went to the Shell service station, picked up an oxyacetylene torch, and cut two and a half inches off just for luck. Remember, they said two inches. He went two and a half inches. The idea, of course, you shorten that rudder up. It's less to push, or I guess at this point, you know, shove through the water with the turbine, and um, it would make the boat more efficient. Two days later, the very last day the Spirit of Australia could use the lake as the agreement had run out, he took the boat onto the water and recorded a mean average of 276 miles an hour, actually hitting 300 on the return run. Frustrated as ever, he screamed at the timing officials as he believed they'd gotten the speed wrong, even though it was all being done by computer. There were two sets of concrete markers that held the timing wire across the water, and that was backed up by numerous stopwatches. All the information was fed into a computer, although rather basic compared to today, and the times and speeds came out. This didn't satisfy Warby, and he ran back to the boat, shouting to the film crew, Well, we've got Campbell now. Let's go and get the other bastard. That referenced, of course, Lee Taylor, who, when he heard of it later, was less than impressed. Warby climbed back into the cockpit. He was told that he'd actually done 286 miles an hour, not 276. The timers had made a mistake, but that only spurred him on, and he set off in the pouring rain to shatter the existing record. The first one was scrubbed off because the rain was hitting the windscreen like pellets, but he did an amazing 302 miles an hour on the next run. All that was needed now was for him to do a repeat run, and the record was his. But just before he set off, a powerboat screamed across the spirit and upset the water. Warby was incandescent, but the villain replied, It's our effing lake. He was one of many who resented the record attempt disturbing the serenity and calm of their retreat, but his actions had left the water disturbed. With a wake like that, wouldn't a wake like created by this boat wouldn't normally calm for at least an hour. And this is where Warby's courage came in. Some would say it's a stubbornness, but otherwise it's courage. He set off and simply kept his foot hard on the throttle, buffeted by winds at 200 miles an hour, his gloveless hands gripping the steering wheel as he guided the boat through the waves and bumps. On the shore, his mother stood there shaking, his father languid and unaffected as always, and his wife and three children, they were nowhere to be sweet, nowhere to be seen. It took the Australian Powerboating Association and Union International Motorboat two hours to check and recheck their findings, but eventually they confirmed that the spirit of Australia had beaten the speed of Hustler, and Ken Warby was now the holder of the world water speed record at 288.172 miles an hour, just three miles an hour faster, but he was the first man to design, build, and race his own boat to the record. He was the ninth man to hold the official record, and the immediate celebrations were wild and emotional, although they were tempered by many who were just relieved that he'd stepped out of his creation in one piece. The few spectators joined in the party, but the anti-Warby brigade just breathed a sigh of relief that it was over and he would, they could have their lake back. Australia now had a world water speed record. The problem was nobody cared. I mean, it, it, and, and this is, uh, this is a, not, not a tragedy, but he sets the record. Uh, there was a, a documentary made called Hit 300 and Smile by the Australian Broadcasting Company. He was um, given awards and recognition. Uh, Sir Jack Brabham, uh, you know, was recognized, handed him the certificate. Brabham, of course, the great uh, Formula One racer and, and race car builder in Australia. Um, 
but nobody really cared. And it made Ken Warby very angry. Why Why did people not care about this? The effort that had gone into it, the work, the, the sacrifice, the suffering. But thankfully, his personality did not allow him to give up, and he was obsessed with going 300 miles an hour or setting the record over 300 miles an hour. The good news is his tenacity and his hard work and his inability to, to let this go allowed him to land a sponsorship from Speedo. Yeah, the company that makes the, the the small swimsuits that usually, unfortunately, large people tend to put on in public places, but they gave him $60,000 for the next attempt. And that right there was huge because the idea was he was able to use this 60000 to help revamp the boat a little bit. He went to the Royal Australian Air Force. They got the engines overhauled and... You know, supposedly the Royal Australian Air Force guys looked at these things and didn't even know how they ran in the first place because they were so tired and jacked up. But for Ken Warby, that was a um, that was a very good, good move because it gave him way more power, and that extra power would come in in a very handy way when he comes out to do his final attempt in 1978. So October of 78 is when he schedules more time on Blowering Dam. Uh, obviously, the people in Blowering Dam are not exactly... Uh, excited to see him back, and he goes out and he hauls down the the Blowering Dam surface on the 9th of October. I will pick it up again here at the book. The next day there was a delay while the timing equipment was made ready. It took nearly two hours to arrange it, so Ken simply lay down in the trailer of his boat, put his hat over his eyes, and went to sleep. When all was ready, he simply got in the boat and raced across the dam with tail spray roostering behind him and the boat bobbing and skimming the waves, almost seemingly afraid to touch the water. A speed of well over 300 miles an hour was recorded. There was then a frustrating wait as the fuel system had to be bled as a blockage meant that nothing was getting into the tank. With minutes left before the official limit, Spirit of Australia turned around and went even faster. One hour later, he had been confirmed by Ken Warby that Ken Warby had smashed his own record by 29 miles an hour, the highest ever margin in the history of the event, and it averaged the incredible speed of 317.596 miles an hour. The run was so fast that photographers on the shoreline couldn't change their focus on their cameras, and the few spectators that witnessed it only saw a flash of spray enveloping the boat as it pierced the lake. The team at the Royal Australian Air Force celebrated wildly, and this time it did make headline news all over his home country, with even evening television news programs headlining the attempt. His mother, crying again, made him promise to give it all up, but he quietly reminded her that she'd said the same when he had taken his first 25-mile-an-hour boat out on the water. He told the press that 350 was his next goal and the boat would be capable of producing such a speed. It was so different this time around. How cool is that? Not only does he break the record, but he breaks the record and he does so to the to the response of national acclaim. It is incredible to think that this guy in his garage at his house built a boat that went 317 miles an hour, the, the largest gap that anybody had put on the record in history, the fastest run ever, first man over 300 miles an hour. He did it all with some used parts that then got tuned up by the, by the Australian Air Force, and he did it all and got a load of deserved attention for it. This is what it sounded like in 1978. Ken Warby and his team almost lost any chance of breaking the world water speed record when cracks appeared in the boat after one run on the Blowering Dam yesterday. But they weren't to be beaten, and after working until midnight last night, they were back on the water again this morning, determined to top the 300 miles per hour barrier. Warby was confident the Spirit of Australia could do it. Conditions were perfect, and the world speed record was about to topple. 
a record to be recognised, Warby had to make two runs, and once again he easily ploughed through the 300 mark. The run averaged out at an amazing 317.19 miles per hour. That's 510.45 kilometres per hour. Warby says he's far from finished. As he celebrated back on shore, he told the crowd, next up it's 350 miles per hour. And after that, well, who knows? Robert Penfold, National 9 News. And so I think it's important to hear the words of Ken Warby himself, who I was able to speak to recently about the boat, about the record, and about his ability to do something that most people had felt was impossible. And after 1978 has certainly seemed impossible. We'll touch about those stories here momentarily. But let's hear from Ken Warby. And occasionally in these quotes, you'll hear a female voice. That is Ken's wife, Barbara. They were together when I conducted this interview via telephone in the not-too-distant past. The words of Ken Warby are very interesting here, and, and um, I have t removed myself largely from this conversation. I will insert myself when need be. But understand that the conversation will range from when he wanted to do this, how he wanted to do this, why he was able to do this, and what it felt like to go 288 versus what it felt like to go 320-some miles an hour to average 317. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Ken Warby in his own words. I'm more into the engineering side of everything. i got to find out what works. And of your... Brian? Yes. Brian, can I... How, how old were you, Ken, when you told your mother you were going to break Donald. Oh, this was a boyhood dream. How old were you? Oh, I was very young when I told my mother I was going to break the, the world speed record. I, I don't really remember, but I was very young and I was, knew I was going to break the world speed record. Do you have any recollection of what your mom said when you mentioned that to her? <laughs> she probably laughed. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. It's, it's it's like I say, time, money, and patience. It takes you it takes you a while. It takes you a lot of money. And did you ever think of quitting? No, no, I'm a stubborn bastard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I, I don't know. I'm just a simple lad with a simple design. You know, I don't know if there was anything special about the spirit of Australia. It was to me. It was just. I don't know. I don't think it was anything special. It was something I just sat down one night and drew it up. <laughs> I don't think there was anything really special about it. I really don't. I don't think there was much difference between them. It was virtually just a boat ride. <laughs> <laughs> it's one hell of a put boat your, ride. Put your foot down and go fast. Well, you know, nobody knew, I knew nothing about turbine engines, I really didn't. You know, and I had to learn as I went along the way. And, you know, I picked up what I could from it, some uh, Air Force guys that I knew. And, uh, you know, I had some uh, uh, Air Force mechanic guys that I knew. And uh, I had uh, a guy called Professor Fink who... Uh, helped me and 
uh, he gave me a few clues and you know I just picked up what I could as as I went along the way and I picked up a little bit of knowledge here and a little bit of knowledge there from people that I could find along the way and I was just learning by the seat of my pants as I went oh I'm, I'm sure that was part of it I'm really sure you know a lot of it was seat of the pants engineering there's no doubt about that oh I'm a little stubborn <laughs> Barbara, does Barbara agree with that? <laughs> um, let's. You know what pit bulls are like <laughs> when they lock onto something, they don't let go. That's Ken. <laughs> I didn't find much difference between the two. I really didn't. You know, speed is speed, and you get used to driving fast. And it's a, it's a matter of uh, just associating with uh, with speed you yeah. know i don't find any difference <laughs> hell i don't know <laughs> it's just a quiet country lad <laughs> that that final laughing response was ken answering my question of how he would have liked or how he would like the world to remember him and what he would like the world to think about his accomplishments. And as you can tell, self-effacing guy, certainly highly motivated, highly driven, and brilliant. And we can't discount that brilliance, this empirical knowledge that uh, he used by eye. And, of course, he worked with a professor to a degree, and, and they made some of those changes, the acetylene torch to the rudder. I mean, the stuff that, that happened to allow that record to be set from his own guts and guile and the hard work of painting you know, stuff in a shopping mall and, and everything else. Um so the story isn't quite over yet, and the story has two more, uh, unfortunately, dark twists and turns, one of them involving Lee Taylor, our old friend who had the record, and the record that Ken Warby took in 1978 was that of Taylor's. And Taylor was not done yet. Taylor had decided that he was going to get the record back, and he was going to do it for his own pride and do it for America. And what Taylor decided to do is attack the record from a new angle. Rather than do what people have been doing since the 1950s with these turbine-powered boats, uh, the, the, the tri, you know, the, um, how should we call it, the, the hydroplanes with the three, you know, the three contact points to the water, he decided to build a rocket boat. The rocket boat that he built was needle-shaped. It was very long. It had a hydrogen peroxide rocket engine. And instead of having a, you know, pickle fork style hull like we had seen everybody use from the K-7 on up to Ken Warby, he decided to use this very long boat and move those those sponsons, move those those other two points of contact of the hull to the very rear. So it almost in, in some ways looked like a top fuel dragster, incredibly long, very narrow. And at the rear where the tires of a top fuel dragster would be were the two sponsons where the machine would be floating as it got up to speed. He attempted to run this boat at a lake in Nevada, and the backers and sponsors of the project thought that that location was far too remote. It was not going to generate any publicity. It was going to be kind of off in the middle of nowhere. So they had to move this record attempt to Lake Tahoe. And in 1980, after years of work getting the boat prepared, after years of work raising money, he decided that he was going to make a go of this, and he was going to go out there and make some runs in a machine called the Discovery 2. 40 feet long, uh, the hull, and again, it looked like it was kind of sitting on skis. $2.25 million went into this project, the money coming from basically 40 companies, everybody giving a little piece of time, effort, or financial uh, help. 
Walter Lake in Nevada was the spot originally going to be used, and then Lake Tahoe was the spot that was, was actually decided on after the sponsors kind of pressured him into it. They made a couple of runs in, or I should say, on the lake in November of 1980 on Lake Tahoe, and it wasn't very stable. It was kind of walking back and forth, if you can imagine this kind of boat rocking back and forth on those rear-mounted sponsons or that rear-mounted hull, if you will. And so November 13th was going to be used as another testing day, and he wanted to make a run of about 250 miles an hour to show the assembled crowd and, and the journalists there that the boat was capable of going very fast. Unfortunately, it was a disaster. And on November 24th, 1980, Sports Illustrated wrote the following story, and I quote from the Sports Illustrated issue. Last Thursday, the 13th, 46-year-old Lee Taylor, a cheerful, dedicated man devoid of superstition, climbed into his 40-foot rocket-powered boat, U.S. Discovery 2, intent on reclaiming the water speed record that he had once held for 10 years. The site he selected, Alpine Lake Tahoe, 6,200 feet up in the Sierras, was ideal for such an extravagant gamble. The thin air at that altitude would not only afford less resistance to Discovery 2 as it sped along, but would also reduce the the risk of the craft taking off into the air, a common failing of vehicles that attempt the water speed record. The weather was perfect, the water conditions nearly so. The sky was cloudless, the wind so soft it could barely be felt on the cheek. The lake surface, there were slick, silvery patches of untroubled water, but most of the course over which Taylor would travel was darkened by two-inch ripples that would help his sponsored craft break out of the water and onto plane. There were random swells a few inches high, but none seemed as bad as those he had encountered on test runs earlier in the day, earlier in the week. At 10.58 a.m. with his craft aligned for the first of two test runs required through the one-kilometer timing trap, Taylor reported on the radio, Hydraulics on, safety valve open, inner safety valve open, regulator 100 PSI. Then he gave the rocket engine two quick bursts, and 20 seconds later, two more. At 11.01, he reported regulator 525 PSI, and at 11.02, he was off. At first, Discovery 2 seemed to be struggling to escape the fury and spray of the fuming steam she created. As the boat leapt higher and higher out of the water, moving even faster, the spray and steam thinned out behind her. On the previous day, in a preliminary run over rough water, Discovery 2 had bounced so violently that the paneling on her 40-foot fuselage had buckled. This time, the trim of the boat laterally as well as fore and aft was obviously better. As the craft streaked through the trap, Jack Arden, communication director in Taylor's recovery boat, shouted on the radio network strung along the six-mile course, It's looking good. It's looking good. A brief moment later, two seconds perhaps, three, Discovery 2 was swallowed in a billowing spray. Fragments of the boat flew 50 feet. Oh God, Lee, someone cried. Lee, can you read me? Lee, can you read me? In five seconds, a helicopter was over the destruction site. Nearly 200 feet of the course was strewn with chunks of flotsam foam. There were five identical objects afloat, the largest of which, the forward 22 feet of the fuselage, the smallest, Taylor's red helmet. This is where Lee Taylor's story ends. Taylor is killed during this attempt, and their theories are many, that the boat was walking back and forth, that the boat, much like the 1952 Crusader accident that killed John Cobb, might have kind of caught an edge, so to speak, and dug into the water and then blown itself apart at the incredible speed it was traveling. That The fact that water, 800 times more dense than air, is so, so unforgiving, had taken yet another life. In the early years of super high-speed boat racing, Lee Taylor was a giant. His unique rocket-powered boat was one of the fastest on the planet. 
On this day, Lee is determined to break the world water speed record with that boat. I'd like to go out for at the beginning around 350 miles an hour, and then I would like to uh, cautiously upgrade the speeds until we come up to about 550 miles an hour. But Lee's dream is doomed to a tragic ending. Lee puts his boat through some test runs. Then he's ready to rumble for the record. Excuse me, sir. His wife Dorothy watches from shore with 600 other spectators. There was such a hustle and bustle, and the crew was running all over. Uh, it was very cold, and everybody was just, everybody was very excited. I wished him luck, and I said, it's going to happen, and he said, it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen today. But Lee's boat is acting up. On the radio, Lee discusses it with his crew chief on shore. I just purged, but I hear uh, air escaping in the back. It's not, it's not sounding quite right to me. Purged. Very good. Dome regulated to 300 miles an hour. Lee leans on the throttle. Now he's over 400 miles an hour and focused completely on the world record. The unthinkable happens. Lee's boat hits a wave and disintegrates. When I saw it happen and everything go flying, it's just like I couldn't believe it. You know, I just couldn't believe it. I thought for sure that he would have ejected himself out and that he would be clear of the accident floating around out there in the water. Rescue crews race to the scene, but all they find are splinters from what used to be Lee's speedboat. I just kept waiting for them to come back and, and have him in the boat. He and the cockpit went to the bottom. It was intact, and they didn't find it for 10 days. Lee's legend lives on, though, and despite the tragic loss from her husband's untimely death, Dorothy is comforted by one thought. I always felt that he died doing what he wanted to do. record has never been broken. There have been two more official attempts. Both were disasters. Lee Taylor was determined to reclaim the title. He built the first ever rocket-powered boat, Discovery 2, and took it to Lake Tahoe. Repeat. How is your line on the course? Obnoxious. Tighten shoulder harness. Tightened. And the came went ready. I'm waiting, but the engine's not. It's cooking like hell. Fire one ready, camera on.
there's very little surface contact. It doesn't take very much air or a slight lump in the water to change your angle of attack. And your boat, once it lifts its nose, lets air under the front, it just keeps blowing it over. That's the biggest danger. jumped up and started rocking violently and he just started to get sponsored walking very badly and just disintegrated. As he approached 270 miles per hour, the boat broke in two. Taylor's body went 300 feet down to the bottom of the lake. Nine years later, in 1989, Craig Arfons took up the challenge in Florida. He was a drag racer, unfamiliar with the dangers of extreme speed over water. He reached the awesome speed of 370 miles per hour. But then his boat went out of control. Another life lost to the water speed record. And it's not to jump ahead, but as you've heard, Lee Taylor was not the only one to meet his end trying to beat Ken Warby's record after the 1978 run. To double back a little bit here, in 1980, Ken Warby took the boat out again to make some exhibition runs. And while making an exhibition run, he was, uh, let's call it interrupted. He was about 200 miles an hour, and there was a, a boat kind of cut across where he was going. And it was going to be... Um, this was going to be kind of the opening salvo of him going out there and really setting the record and trying to go for that, trying to go for that 325, 350 mile an hour run. But the water levels had dropped at Blowering Dam. Uh, the drought was on in Australia very strong during that 1980 time period, and he decided to retire at that point. And he he uh, turned the boat over to the Maritime Museum at Darlington Harbor in Sydney, Australia the National Maritime Museum, I should say. It remains to this day hanging there. It is a prime attraction at the museum. It is still the fastest boat that has ever been built. And Ken Warby moved to America in the early 1980s, and he went drag racing. Uh, he ran jet cars. He ran funny cars. He was a great drag racer for many, many years, uh, opened up a successful concrete business in the Cincinnati, Ohio area, and became very friendly with the Arfons family. He knew Lee Taylor, but he was really friendly with the Arfons family. And when Craig Arfons was going to um, kind of attack this water speed record, he and he and Ken Warby had a lot of conversations about it. They had a lot of conversations about design and construction and and uh, engineering and and power and and really all the basic things that that needed to be done. Um, Craig Arfons, you know, it was mentioned in that in that last clip that he didn't have any experience with high speed on water. Well, uh, Craig Arfons was an incredibly accomplished driver at this time. Of course, the Arfons family. You know, having uh, driven all kinds of, of uh, race cars and, and having been around very high-speed things his whole life. He was not unaccustomed to that. I felt like that was a, a bit of a cheap shot uh, in that last clip. So I don't want to devalue his experience as a racer. He did not have a lot of experience in building, um, the, the you know, attempting to build the fastest boat in the world. And so Craig... Um, designs this boat and it's a it's unique and it's a, the most technologically advanced boat that has been created to this point and he was working out of a, a workshop in Bradenton Florida and 
he built this thing out of composite so that this was neat it was built in two halves a top and a bottom half and they were connected in the middle and so he builds this thing and and he's consulting with people like uh, McLaren the Formula One team Mario Andretti um, Rain X was the big sponsor the boat was called the Rain X Challenger and working with you know these racers and working with these race teams to kind of understand the the parts and pieces this this carbon fiber kind of honeycomb that the boat was built of it was 25 foot long boat because it was built out of composite it was very light only 2500 pounds including the big j85 engine j85 is a is a very significant uh, turbine engine and it was um it, it, it was going to make enough power to do the job to go back to quoting the world water speed record book Aerodynamically, it was unusual. At no stage was the boat ever taken to a wind tunnel, but the needlepoint design of the Spirit of Australia was deemed unworkable for this boat, so a crab claw front took precedence. With two inwardly-facing tail fins at the rear, I truly believe that a wind tunnel isn't necessary, said Arfons when he was asked about it. It will only show the shape needed to lift its own weight. Instead, Jay McCracken, a computer expert friend, has developed a system of 18 tapping points at strategic locations on the hull, 12 on the deck and 6 underneath, and they all plug into a computer on the shore. Our plan is to work up to 100 miles an hour, then hook up to the shore computer, feed this data, and then we'll do the same at 150, 200, and 250, each time getting the information to the computer. If this thing's going to fly, one of the points will warn us. These were brave and confident words, but Arfons genuinely believed he had everything in place not only to beat the existing record, but to smash it out of sight. He confidently spoke of 400 miles an hour and then later a run at 750 on land. That confidence came from not just the Arfons bloodline, but the fact he designed and built the boat himself in a similar fashion to Ken Warby. It also helped that he had sponsors who put up 250000 to finance the attempt after Arfons had shown him a film of Spirit of Australia. So the, initially, the boat was taken to Lake Manatee in Florida, which is directly across from Bradenton Motorsports Park, the drag strip down there. The interesting thing was uh, they only allowed him to run it at 20 miles an hour in that lake. This was simply a buoyancy test, really, to get out there and move the thing around. And it was Sebring Lake was when the idea was um, was decided to, to kind of make this record run. And in August, they actually went to a place called Lake Jackson and immediately went 250 miles an hour in choppy water and a crosswind. So... You know, the, the thing we also have to remember about Craig Arfon's attempt was, unlike Lee Taylor's, this boat had proven itself capable at 250 miles an hour already. And so we are still at Lake Jackson, as we quote from the book. The day in question was calm, and the water seemed amenable when Rain-X Challenger set off on its run, but immediately those in the know could tell there was something badly wrong. The boat was porpoise porpoising heavily and then corkscrewed wildly out of control when it reached the flying kilometer at high speed. By instinct, the afterburner was shut off by Craig, but the parachute failed, and the boat didn't slow down as planned. The engine now pushed the boat into its right sponson, and then the craft bounced into the air before crashing back into the water at incredible g-force, tearing the hull apart. Somehow, the cockpit survived the impact, as it had been designed to do, but the safety harness failed, and Arfons was thrown through the windscreen at terrible velocity. He was found to have many broken bones massive internal injuries, and he died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital after being put on life support. At the age of 39, Craig Arfons had joined Henry Seagrave, John Cobb, Mario Vega, Donald Campbell, and Lee Taylor as men who had been killed in their quest for the world record of speed on water. Of all the scenarios that could have unfolded today, this one was the most unexpected. 
It was a made-to-order morning in Sebring. The water on Lake Jackson, smooth and flat. A perfect setting for Craig Arfons and his 26-foot jet-powered boat to chase a dream. This was the day Craig would light the afterburner for nine seconds and attempt to set a new world water speed record. We are ready, yes. The boat's been ready and setting in the trailer and ready to go for two weeks. Uh, the crew's ready, everybody's ready. We are just, this couldn't be a better time. Couldn't be a better time. During the entire two-year project, it has always been safety first for this team, a group of professionals all quite aware that four men had already perished trying to be fastest on the water. I've started to reflect on driving it. A couple mornings I got up at 4 o'clock and walked out to the lake and thought, uh, what'd you get yourself into this time? You know, but, but I'm really not afraid of it yet. I, I will be at some period, obviously. You, you, know, you, you get afraid when you climb into that roller coaster and take the ride, but once it starts down the hill, you feel pretty good about it. So that's what I'm looking forward to is the, the ascent down the hill anyway. It was all supposed to happen Saturday, but safety first. The water was just too rough, so the attempt was put off until this morning. And at 10 minutes after 7, on a perfect day, Craig Arfons gave it all he had. Well, right now, everybody's kind of in shock. Uh, we didn't expect this to happen. Safety precautions have been the keynote of this entire campaign, as we've said many times. It appeared as if when Craig hit the afterburner, the boat started to drift to the right. We don't think it was a wave because the water conditions were perfect. Barely eight minutes after the crash, Craig was on his way to the hospital, alive but with multiple fractures. And in the following hour, while friends and crew searched for comfort, the shattered boat was brought to shore in pieces as everyone searched for a reason. Conditions were so good that maybe I think he was really wanting it badly and, and maybe he went ahead and pressed on. And uh, as we had talked about, the you know, a run uh, maybe not quite all the way, but uh, he was there. And I mean, it was like uh, he really had confidence in it. He put a lot of time in it. From the best knowledge that he had, he felt comfortable with what he had. Uh, the capsule tried to work. I mean, actually, uh, considering what it went through, uh, actually things were in better shape than you would expect. A little more than an hour after the crash, as an eerie fog rolled slowly across the lake, word came that Craig Arfons was gone. A man who grew up around speed, watched his father and his uncle set land speed records, Craig Arfons knew the risk he was taking, and he was prepared. I didn't like racing because of what it did to my mother, and I saw how my father had crashed many times and didn't really like that part. And so in a twist that is almost too ironic to, to even bring up, you have Craig Arfons passing away in much the same way the first man who died in this quest for the water speed record did in the form of Seagrave. Remember, Seagrave, you know, suffered grievous injuries and, and passed away several hours after the fact. And for Craig Arfons, it was the grievous injuries and he lingered for a little while and then he passed away. That really does bring us to the end of this story because no one else has attempted yet to break Ken Warby's record. I say yet because there are boats being built or proposed to being built around the world to run after this record, one of which is being built by David Warby, who is Ken Warby's son. Ken's no longer in the physical shape or condition to make multiple trips to Australia every year to work on the boat. He's been estranged from his son for a little while. But that is perhaps the highest line effort that's being put together right now. And that boat has seen the water. It has not seen the water at 317 miles an hour yet, but it has seen the water. The Warby family has showed us once that they could set the record. It would certainly be very, interest, be very interesting to see if they could do it twice with two different generations. 
I hope you've enjoyed this look back at the water speed record. This is a story that has obsessed me now for several months. It's taken a long time to put this episode together for pretty obvious reasons. I went through and did as much very detailed research as I possibly could. And when you get kind of captured by a story like this, it is um, it is almost impossible to let it go. And, and, and I know this is an incredibly long show, um, but I also know that uh, there's not anywhere else you're going to hear any of this stuff typically. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I do hope you've gone uh, into depth with me and, 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 and kind of understand the bravery that it took and has taken these record setters, these record attempters, men like Donald Campbell and, and men like uh, Cobb and, of course, Taylor and, and Sayers and, and Garwood and really the, um, the gutsiest guys of their particular eras, so to speak. If you love the Dorkomotive podcast, you can go to dorkomotive.com and support the show. Thank you so much if you've hung in all the way to the end of this broadcast. It has been a labor of love to make this show, and I now consider myself um, pretty intrigued by the idea of going fast on the water, at least watching somebody do it. I have no intention of going very fast on the water unless I've been hanging out one of my buddy's boats, and none of them will even break 50 mile an hour, let alone 350 miles an hour. As always, thanks for listening to the Dorkomotive Podcast. We'll be back with more episodes soon on another topic across the world of history, motorsports, and the mechanical universe.